Seven and a half minutes past nine. Good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show. This is Mick Mulcahy. We'll continue with the weather in 27 degrees swelter, says the mirror today. An Indian summer to stick around for the next few days. Forecasters have tipped Ireland to swelter under daytime temperatures of 27 degrees and sultry 18 degrees nighttime highs in the mini heatwave. We're hotter than uh, Madrid, uh, Malaga and Ibiza today. Uh, according to the forecast, we will be anyway. The top temperatures of uh, 27 degrees was recorded yesterday uh, on Met Air and Weather Charts, uh, while highs of 26 are due again today, tomorrow and on Thursday. However, Met Air and could issue weather warnings as the thunderstorms, if they happen, uh, are likely to be heavy. Well, thunderstorms normally are, aren't they? And uh, they will happen in isolated places uh, over the next couple of days. RT weather presenter Nuala Carey said, Our weather will remain dry, bright and warm. Well, our weather could turn on Thursday with thunder, isolated uh, um, showers, and some of them could be heavy and cause spot flooding. So enjoy the uh, sunshine where and when we can. GP on call concerns Blackpool South Dock could be under strain. Echoes front page has Breda Graham reporting that a Cork TD has said the HSE has done little to quell an anxiety for patients across the north side after concerns about the potential loss of some services from South Dock Blackpool were raised. Sinn Féin TD for Cork North Central, Thomas Gould, you're making the front page again, Thomas, uh, said he had learned in recent weeks that the vehicle used for out-of-hours Household treatment in Cork City is to be relocated from Kinsale Road to Blackpool where one locum doctor is based. And the HSC has told the Echo that there are no plans to withdraw access to South Dock uh, service, services from patients and that Blackpool will continue to open by appointment. Also on the Echo front page, supporting pictures in the press as well today, the demolition of uh, former hotel commences. The demolition work has begun yesterday at the site of the landmark former Sunset Ridge Hotel in Killeen's. The hotel formerly owned by the Cronin family had been a very popular venue for functions on the north side of the city but it ceased trading several years ago. The hotel was boarded up in recent years and was gutted in a suspected arson attack last year. Planning permission was granted in March this year by Cork City Council to the developers Oshawott Limited for the demolition of the former Sunset Ridge Hotel and the construction of 43 residential units, a pharmacy and medical consulting rooms. So that work has now begun. Children are suffering online bullying in silence. A detailed article on front of the examiner today. Uh, Joe Casey, their education correspondent, reporting that half of primary pupils do not tell parents about cyberbullying. Cyberbullied children as young as eight years old are suffering in silence with almost half of primary age children not telling their parents and almost a third telling absolutely no one. As the government looks for ways to help schools that are trying to ban smartphones, a major survey published today outlines just how prevalent cyberbullying is among children and how dangerous it can be. The latest trends and usage report from national charity CyberSafe Kids charts more than 5,000 children and young people's usage of smart devices and access to the online world through apps and gaming. Some of the uh, findings are uh, startling. 25% of primary school pupils uh, experience cyberbullying during the last school year alone. Girls more likely to be victimised online than boys, but boys less likely to come forward forward. Almost two-thirds, 62% of teachers dealt with online safety incidents during the last school year. Almost a third of 8 to 12-year-olds and three-quarters of 12 to 16-year-olds 
are allowed online whenever they want and many don't know how to protect themselves online. More than 60% of children have been contacted by a stranger in an online game. Listen to that figure. More than 60% of children have been contacted by a stranger in an online game. Now, the report can't, of course, uh, determine whether that stranger had untoward intentions, uh, but certainly it's not safe to be able to be contacted by strangers at that very young age. Uh, The Independent front page covers the same story. Girls bearing the brunt of online bullying. A new report reveals, I think girls, uh, young girls especially, uh, later primary school and early to mid-secondary school uh, are subject to the most cowardly and damaging uh, of bullying, which is bullying by exclusion. Uh, just by not being part of the gang, just by not being uh, brought into the uh, the chat group or whatever can make people feel very, very low indeed. But the levels, levels of cyberbullying, contact from strangers and exposure to sexual or violent content that 8 to 16-year-olds face online is detailed in a new report and it makes for sobering reading for parents. Uh, Gilligan felt nothing over Gearan's murder. Not sure if you watched the first of the three-parter on uh, John Gilligan last night on Virgin Media. He's now 71. He said he felt nothing about the murder of journal- journalist Veronica Gearan because her death did not matter to him. Watershed moment in Irish, uh, I suppose, the, the life of Irish crime and the life of Irish journalism, but it meant nothing to John Gilligan. Gilligan, the leader of the gang responsible for killing Miss Gearan, which of course he's denied, has begun telling stories of his life of crime in the three-part Virgin Media documentary Confessions of a Crime Boss. In 2001, he was cleared at Miss Gearan's murder uh, in 1996, um, but was jailed by the Special Criminal Court for 28 years for importing uh, cannabis resin. At the trial, Mr. Justice Dermot O'Donovan said of Gilligan, never in the history of Irish criminal jurisprudence has one person presented to have caused so much wretchedness to so many. A hemorrhage of harm that is unlikely to heal in a generation. So the first part of the documentary aired last night. I'm not sure it was airing three nights in a row or three weeks in a row. That wasn't evident at the end of the programme. But this was just hours after Gilligan walked free from a Spanish court despite confessing to drugs and weapons charges, walking away there with a suspended sentence. And smiling Gilligan is to be seen all over the morning papers. Speed camera used to rise. We mentioned this yesterday. It's going to rise 20% as road deaths climb. There's an extra 1,500 hours of monitoring provided uh, with 1.2 million euro in funding. The use of speed cameras on Irish roads is to increase by 20% in response to worrying trends around increasing road fatalities, the Justice Minister had said. And this might garner broad support uh, if it wasn't the... um, the incidents of the uh, the speed vans, uh, like fish shooting fish in a barrel, where there's never really been an accident, but you come around a corner and there it is, and you're caught, uh, you know, in 30 and 50 mile an hour zones doing a few over, and, um, and that's just a, a personal observation. But uh, I think um, broadly, people will welcome more speed cameras on the main thoroughfares, you know, where it's 120, uh, you should be caught and stopped and fined if you're doing 150. Uh, because that's blatantly unsafe. But as long as you keep to the 120 uh, or so, 
maybe there's a little a couple of kilometres over you can go and not be caught I don't know um, but uh, those higher speed limits I think need to be enforced more than the uh, shooting fish in a barrel ones uh, around estates and that kind of thing uh, I know estates can be dangerous as well I don't want to be opening a can of worms uh, Helen McEntee the Justice Minister said an additional 1.2 million uh, is to be allocated for go save vans providing an extra 1500 hours of monitoring per month until the end of this year I wonder are they cost um, neutral? Are they making profit for the state or are they costing the state money? I'd venture they're costing money uh, even though they are uh, racking up fines for thousands of motorists. Now, you've got to recognise the good intention here. Uh, they are trying to keep the road safer and God knows it's needed. An Arsenal fan breaks his nose headbutting Roy Keane. This story making all of the tabloids today. An Arsenal fan broke his nose, has since been arrested, I believe, after clashing with Sky Pundit Roy Keane. Scott Law appeared to headbutt Keane when the former Man United star cheered a goal from his old team against the Gunners. Uh, Mika or Micah Richards stepped in and uh, uh, is seen in the pictures holding him back. The pictures are very unclear, but they're making most of the tabloids today. Chukig or Graw is the main headline on front of the star. Uh, the Wolftown singer, or a Wolftown singer, has taken a dig at Joe Duffy after the epic EP Electric Picnic Love in Wolftown's frontman Brian Warfield has hailed the band's record-breaking ele- uh, Electric Picnic show, telling Liveline host Joe Duffy, you'd never get a crowd that big listening to you. The Rebel Balladeers attracted an absolutely huge crowd to their tent, Uh, despite Joe Duffy describing their music as awful. And if you do get a chance to pick up the star today or if you're in a a service station and you're passing, have a look at the picture. Uh, Picture says a thousand words. Uh, The tent is absolutely surrounded by tens, I mean tens, of thousands of people who couldn't get in. So uh, Brian Warfield uh, said to be humbled and thanked fans for flocking to their show at the EP Electric Picnic in record numbers. The picture is unbelievable, honestly. Air traffic control failure has not been explained. Ryanair has said that around 63,000 of its passengers had their flights cancelled during last week's UK air traffic control failure, which caused widespread disruption across the industry and left thousands of passengers stranded overseas. In its August traffic update, the Irish carrier said that more than 350 of its flights were cancelled on August 28th and 29th due to the air traffic control ATC issue. Uh, more than a quarter of all flights to and from UK airports were cancelled on Monday. Not making the morning papers because it's just happening is the uh, the uh, once Irish, or I suppose you could call him Irish, Alan Joyce, has stepped down um, as the CEO of Qantas. Uh, that's after some very, very bruising encounters uh, with the Australian government where he was accused of uh, having a bromance with the Prime Minister, uh, of giving the Prime Minister's son Chairman Lounge access, uh, of withholding vouchers that they charged for uh, to the tune of a half a billion dollars, and uh, of selling flights that, he, that Qantas knew were already cancelled. Uh, so all of this is still playing out, but uh, it's finally taken its toll. He's stepping down anyway, but is now stepping down early. Someone told me $24 million will be his uh, cheerio payment. Nice work if you can get it. The long COVID pain. A study finds that nearly 200,000 of us are living with symptoms. More than 5% of adults are living with symptoms of long COVID. Uh, shock new data uh, indicates at least 192,000 people across the country 
could be impacted. We've got the love for our own bodies. Ireland is in the top 10 countries happy with their physique. Irish people are generally happy with their own bodies and are in the top 10 of nationalities content with their own physiques, a global study has revealed. A survey of 57,000 studied in 65 nations saw the Irish come 8th behind Egypt but before Poland. Uh, There's a pub chain about to cut food and drink prices. We've had uh, publicans and hospitality chiefs lamenting the fact that the the VAT is going back up. But Weatherspoon pubs are booking the trend and are cutting the prices of all food and drinks for one day, outs for one day, in a bid to highlight the tax burden on the hospitality industry. The chain will reduce prices by 7.5% across Ireland and the UK on uh, next Thursday, so uh, September 14th. Thursday week. It means that, for example, a customer spending 10 euro on food and drinks will pay 9.25 for one day only. The group's founder and chairman, Tim Martin, said the biggest threat to the hospitality industry is the vast disparity in tax treatment among pubs, restaurants and supermarkets. Weatherspoons has seven pubs in Ireland, five in Dublin, one in Cork uh, and Paul Street, isn't it? And another in Carlo. And in the mirror, you can tickle the ivories of a mercurial music talent. Uh, a report saying that Freddie Mercury's piano is to be auctioned. The Queen star bought the Yamaha Baby Grand in 1975 and used it to develop the band's hits, including Bohemian Rhapsody. The sale comes a month after thousands of items from Mercury's home. Garden Lodge in Kensington, just off the Earl's Court Road in West London, uh, were displayed in the Freddie Mercury A World of His Own exhibition. Sotheby's expects uh, the piano to go for between 2 and 3 million euros on September 6th, which is tomorrow. Though there will be no reserve. Part of the profit will go to the Elton John AIDS Foundation. Mercury had AIDS and died at the age of 45 in 1991. Sir Elton has said, I miss Freddie to this day. He was a wonderful friend, more full of love and life than anyone I've ever met. 21 minutes past nine. Those are the morning papers. Text the Neil Prenderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. Good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show. This is Mick Mulcahy. Now, I read an amazing article yesterday in The Guardian, raised by addicts, abused, neglected, broke how Katrina O'Sullivan escaped her fate. And I'd like to preface the interview by doing a little bit of reading uh, from the top of that article, to which I'll credit Emil Sainer uh, of The Guardian. Pregnant at 15 and soon to be homeless, O'Sullivan never expected to succeed, but became a leading academic. The author of a book called Poor talks about everything that conspired to keep her down and her miraculous and rare ascent. And there's a little story which uh, I'll read first before... Uh, talking to our guest in a lecture room at Ireland's most elite university. A woman in a hoodie and jeans, her hair in a messy bun, was sorting out some chairs. A student came in and told her that she couldn't clean in there right now because a class was about to start. I know, the woman told her. I'm teaching it. Good morning, Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan. Good morning. Thanks for having me. That's a that's an okay preface, is it? We're, we're going to get into, yeah. in, into the story, but you have... Uh, you know, from the depths of society, really, uh, to, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, had an extraordinary rise through determination, slight little smattering of fairy dust and good luck, uh, two particular teachers that uh, took you under their wing, as they say. Um, mm. But life was not good for you, uh, with your parents addicted to, to drugs. Uh, I know a very traumatic 
sexual interference with you at the age of seven. Um, the outlook was not good back then. No, um, it, it wasn't. I grew up in a home. My parents were mentally ill. Addiction is an illness and, you know, they didn't choose that life, unfortunately, but neither did we. And so I grew up in a home where we didn't have food. We rarely were hugged. There was a lot of neglect and I suppose I've I've written my book because, you know, sometimes when you grow up like that, the world is a really difficult place to navigate. And I feel like I've been really lucky in some ways to be able to get support from the system and society to actually get to this place. But yeah, I grew up in a really, it was a really dark time. My childhood was really hard going. And, um, but as I write about in the book, there are some really beautiful people along the way who actually helped me, I suppose, escape poverty and make a, a different life for myself. Yeah, the book is a memoir. It's called Poor, uh, and that's yeah. why we're talking to you today. And uh, it's been des- described as having a little bit of delicious awkwardness, but also uh, charting your path from virtually unimaginable uh, poverty and trauma mm. to top-level le- uh, education. Uh, yeah. what, what do you put that down to? I know there was uh, an element of luck uh, with a female and a male teacher who saw yeah. something in you or, or the need to protect and nurture you. I think, I think, you know, um, when you grow up in poverty and there's trauma in your home or addiction or, or mental illness or whatever, sometimes going to school, like the expectation is that you're going to perform the same as everybody else. People, teachers don't really take it into consideration that you might be coming in with a load of baggage. And so I, I failed in school because I had all this other stuff going on and I really didn't know my full potential. And I, I was lucky that I had these two teachers. I had some really good teachers all the way through, but these two particular teachers cared for me, actually gave me belief in myself when I didn't really think I was up to much. But I still failed in school and ended up homeless. At 15, I got pregnant. Ended up homeless. The fact that these two wonderful teachers went out that way to try and make me feel like I was something special. Uh. But, um, it's a particularly bad really... phone line, Katrina. Could you just move slightly oh. and see if we can get a better signal? Yeah, sorry. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. Where, where do we find you this morning? Ireland, UK or I'm in, what? I'm in, I'm in uh, Hollystown in Blanchestown okay. in Dublin. Yeah. yeah. We should have a good so, signal then, you would think. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, it's usually really good. Sorry about that. Is okay. it better now? Yeah. Much better. Thank you, thank you very much. So, so preg- yeah. pregnant at, at 15... Um, and homeless. Not, yeah. mu- not much positive happening at home. And I know you've reconciled, um, uh, you know, and the forgiveness element is there and the understanding is there for your parents. But t- yeah. take us through that time and, and what finally put you on the path to bettering yourself through education? I think what was, I, I moved to Dublin. My dad, my family's Irish. We're all Irish. We lived in the UK for years. But I, I moved back to Dublin when I was 21 and I was in, in the heart of Dublin in, in Summerhill. And it was it was early 2000s, and we're in the Celtic Tiger, and went, and we, I was really lucky that there was loads of investment then in in poor people, like the government. The money trickles down when there is surplus, and so when like most women like me, most girls like me, who might look like we don't want much or we don't, you know, aspire to much. There's always times like I was a cleaner in Connolly Station, and I remember I was cleaning the toilets, and I was like, is this it? is this it for me? And I'd regularly have that feeling. I was really lucky that when I had that 
is this it? There was these community service programs that I could go in and ask for help. And so I, I actually started my journey in, in, two, in when I was 21 in an actual uh, parenting course. That was the first taste of education that I got. It was a free course. It was for mothers in the community. And I used to go there in the mornings. It was actually my first introduction to uh, the food pyramid. Before then, I thought chicken nuggets were healthy, healthy dinners. <laughs> but I had actually gone along to this. And I, it was my first introduction. So I, I suppose what I'm saying is that actually the system was in place to offer me an opportunity when I looked for it. And one of the, one of the important things that happened to me is I actually met a girl from town, a girl like me, she was a lone parent. One day I met her on uh, O'Connell Street and she said to me, I'm in Trinity College. And I swear a lot and I said to her, no effing way, because I didn't think people like us were allowed in there. But she'd gone into Trinity through this program called the Trinity Access Program, which had been created specifically for girls like me, for poor people who hadn't had an opportunity. So I marched over there straight away. I was like, I want a chance at life. And I was really lucky to have met a woman in Trinity at that time who just saw my potential as well. And so I found myself at 23 uh, applying to the Trinity Access Programme and in the halls of Trinity College. This chavvy girl who didn't have any, I suppose, social skills, hadn't been into railing, didn't know what couscous was, but I found myself studying in Trinity College really by accident. And what I learned when I was in there is that even though I could see all this privilege, I performed just as well, if not better than some of the other students. And what I learned about myself, which I never knew all my life, was that I'm actually really intelligent and I'm really smart and I'm really good at studying, but I just hadn't had the opportunity before. And I suppose that was the beginning of my ascent into like a really great career in academia. Okay, I'm interested in your take. Uh, Because of things that you've said, uh, I have a kind of a flavour of what your answer might be. But you said once, there's a uniform of the middle classes. Uh, The vision they have of a person from the underclass or a working class background. Um, You know, you you could see that coming through. We did an interview, a remarkable guy uh, called Ricky O'Donovan last Friday on this programme. And I shipped some criticism by text uh, over that from people say I'm firmly middle class I'm working a job and a half I'm trying to keep up with rising taxes I'm paying yeah. all my, my, my dues uh, and my bills and, and no one ever calls me heroic uh, but yeah. why, why, why are we glorifying addicts and those that pull themselves out of the gutter on the radio show so oh, I'm just, just interested on, in, in your take on the perceived classes if they exist in this country like if anybody, so when I wrote my book like I don't want to be heralded as some as some success story, as if, like, and, and that was one of the reasons I wasn't going to write my book. I actually wrote my book to actually show people what the system needs to do to ensure everybody has a fair chance. It isn't, this isn't a let's glorify addiction um, and celebrate people who do wrong. And I really have n- no problem with middle class people or, or, like, I'd love to have grown up middle class. Oh, my God, I just swapped my childhood any day with someone who, you know, two-income household who were, was able to pay for their child to go to college or have grinds. But the reality is we do live in an unfair system. And there are children like me who are going to food banks currently who are living in, in poverty. And there are other people who have a lot of privilege who are not actually doing anything to make it fairer. Like, 
one of the hardest things about going to Trinity College wasn't the studying. It was actually be, actually having my eyes open to society and realising, for example, the leaving cert system is really unfair and unequal. Like you can literally buy yourself success in that, which will then buy your place in a, a good university, which will then ensure that you get a better job. Like there's lots of unequal stuff in society that people who are educated and privileged know about and they don't really do much about. So my story isn't about glorifying addiction, glorifying leaving school early. It's about actually highlighting how the system empowered me and I am actually one of the most successful academics in my university and there's many more people like me living in poverty who just require a system to be changed in order for them to contribute to society like I am. So that's the reason why I wrote my story and that's my answer I suppose to them criticisms. And I I struggle, I mean like I see the tax system, the broken education programs for people who are just above the income bracket, like I haven't I, I, I sympathise with them people, but I also sympathise with kids who are left in abject poverty, who are being abused and neglected, and grow up feeling like they're stupid when they're actually not. Okay. Your book, Poor, has been lauded by the uh, the Guardian interview with me and Sainer as being, and I quote, one of the best I've read about the complexities of poverty and drug addiction. Um in, in your case, all of the elements, as Amin Sainer said, like a combination lock being turned yeah. to feature the right numbers, all clicked into place. Uh, yeah. and, and I'm talking about uh, grants, an access program that encouraged you, the two exactly. teachers who'd given you the previous encouragement, and of course, state-funded childcare and counselling, which is a yeah. huge bone of contention at the moment, that childcare costs uh, access to counselling and services like that. Well, that, yeah, I mean, the, I, I think we can look at things from a short-sighted point of view or a long-sighted point of view. So a short-sighted point of view would say, why should we invest in these people who don't really, who don't deserve it? Let's give it to people who are struggling, who are, you know, kind of nearly there. But the truth is, like, when you empower a woman like me and you give her childcare support so she can go back to education or get employed and you give her access to grants and systems like that to allow her to upskill, you not only change her life and provide her with an opportunity, but you also change the life of her her children. So like in my case, like I was so lucky that I got a grant, I got community childcare, I got a scholarship from Dublin Docklands, the Vincent de Paul supported me. And all of that allowed me to move out of poverty, but also into a position where I now have children. My son just got accepted to university, first in our family ever to finish school, let alone go to university. He's just got his first, uh, first choice offer in university. My whole family's trajectory has changed because of these systems and we're actually currently now in a financial situation in Ireland exactly the same as we were back then the difference is we haven't reinvested in these programs so for example community childcare that's just completely gone now there's no place where you could leave your child for two hours so you could engage in some activation program and employment program so like my book is about trying to just showcase look this is the cost of poverty on a person and society and these are the ways that we might be able to shift it if we choose to 
And, and do, does the book look at the you know how, how can I how can I put this the, the old the old late comedian George Carlin had uh, and it has to be said he's a comedian it was a funny piece uh, but he he kind of dictated there were three classes the upper class wealthy who make the money work for them the middle yeah. class who trade their time for money. And the poor, the, the poorer classes who take money from the system. Uh, all the time, the upper and political classes are demonising the poor classes to keep the yeah. middle classes scared of them to continue working to provide the benefits that the upper class like. That, that, that's that's, that's yeah. pricing it down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that is the truth. Like, uh, I was at a, a talk a, f- a week or so ago about my book and there was a really working class woman who, had, you know, her and her husband are working hard to try and get their kids to college. And she said to me, these kids in debt schools, they get everything. They get everything. And I said to her, it's so untrue that they get everything. They're already at the back of the line in terms of the education race. Like, Desh as a scheme or trying to provide options to kids that are in significantly disadvantaged communities is actually trying to just equalize the race. But what we have is a system where, yes, really privileged people really like to see that, the, you know, the stretched middle looking downwards and going, it's their fault, rather than looking upwards and saying, actually, what are the privileged, uh, the real privileged people in our system doing to make it fairer? Now, like, I, I kind of, I just don't think if you're... I don't think if you're educated, you can ignore inequality. I don't think you should be allowed to ignore it. And you should, you know, I think we should all be doing stuff to make things fairer. Like a child, like, like I wrote my book specifically from the viewpoint of a little girl. I was just a little girl, a little bright, vivacious girl who was born into a family that had significant difficulties. And while my family let me down, the system that I lived in let me down more the education system let me down, the social welfare system, the social services or TUSLA, all of them systems that were set to try and make it better for me, they let me down more than my family. And I think it's really important that we consider who are we as a nation? Do we want to support put people in poverty? And if we don't, that's fair enough. But if we do, then we need to do more to make it fairer. And what you said there is really important point. You know, that looking down on poor people as if they're the reason for the issues, I think people need to reevaluate and maybe look at the more privileged people and say, what are they doing? Yeah, let's, let's look at the impact inside the book. Your parents, Tony and Chili, were heroin addicts. Home could be a frightening place where drugs were dealt. Uh, friends, or so-called friends of your parents, often sprawled on the floor. Now, when you were five or six, you discovered your father had overdosed, was unconscious. Yeah. There was a syringe still stuck in his flesh. He was then jailed for selling drugs. And not long afterwards, uh, and she, uh, you and one of your siblings would be used as children to smuggle drugs into the prison. While he was inside, one yeah. of the men who hung around with the family raped you. Uh, and when mm-hmm. you said this to your mum, and here's the stark impact, uh, this was the response. Yeah, well, he raped me too, said your mum. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's very triggering to be talking about rape on the radio at 10 o'clock in the morning. So I think having a warning about, you know, the content of the show is really important. I think, you know, it's important to read my story in the full context in which it's written. My mum was a, a loving woman. She had mental health difficulties. She was raped herself. She come from poverty herself, which is quite, it is actually quite normal, like poverty reproduces itself. So that, I told that particular story because I wanted to highlight the fact, firstly, one in four adults in our country have experienced abuse as a child. So it's not 
uncommon. And it's something that regularly isn't spoken about and there's a lot of shame that's attached to it. And the other reason is because poor children are more vulnerable to abuse than any other, than any other kids. The kids that are, un, are unkempt or unlooked after or have struggles within their family, they're actually targeted by, by uh, paedophiles or people who are, you know, um, have horrible intentions towards children. So I, I wrote that story for that reason, to actually showcase, like, the harm and the risk that are associated with growing up in poverty. And obviously, like, that is the most, the dark, that is the darkest piece of my childhood but I want to make it clear that my book is not poverty porn like it's not a story of you know all these bad things that happened to me it's a story of the complexities of poverty the light and the dark so like while I had all this horrible dark stuff going on I also had these parents who were vivacious and would listen to music and we had fun in the home but there was the darkness and it's really important when you talked about me going to the prison like I, I was socialized from a very young age, not just by my family, but like we were, we were in a council community, like poor people are placed together in large communities without opportunities, without uh, support, without education, without employment. And like, we're expected to thrive in inverted commas. So like the norm in my community was crime, drug dealing, um, that was normal. Like the best jobs that I saw as a young woman were cleaning, hairdressing, mothering, beautician. I never knew anybody who went to university. I never, I never knew anybody. I never heard that that was an option for myself. I know my mom had the same experience. And so there's a part of me that like thinks it sounds shocking, a little child being involved in crime. But when you look at it from a structural point of view, it, what else could we have done? Is that child eating? Is that child able to eat? Because amid, yeah. amid all the chaos, school was an escape for you. Maybe that's what, what kindled you to go to school in later life and go to third level. It was also yeah. the, on, the only place you ate, and it's where you found the kindness uh, of Miss, yeah. uh, Mrs. Uh, Miss Arkinson uh, and in secondary school, Mr. Pickering. Now, school yeah. was where you would wash, where she knew you needed hygiene that, that, yeah. that you weren't getting. You didn't have soap, a towel, or even a toothbrush uh, at home, and that was, a, that was a good start. And in secondary then, Mr. Pickering uh, saw something in you about that was bright, that you loved reading uh, yeah. bought, bought you Jane Austen and John Steinbeck to read and, <laughs> yeah. and, and once again those combination locks are clicking into the right place here. I think one thing about teachers, like one of the reasons I wrote my book is in, as a thank you to the educators in our system that actually go out of their way to see past see past the dysfunction that can come in children who are living like I did and you know, if you can imagine, as a little girl, in my home, it was so dark. Inside me, there was this darkness, this darkness that was fear-based and, you know, was based on deprivation. So I'm walking around with this little dark space in my belly all day. And I go to school and I meet this wonderful Irish woman <laughs> who recognized my Irishness immediately, who actually saw past the little girl who was unable to sit still, who was messing all the time. And she used to give me jobs. So she, so she used to say, and she'd say my name correctly as well, because everyone in England used to say Catriona. And she'd <laughs> say, Katrina, can you go and get me this? Katrina. And even though I wouldn't do the job sometimes or I'd tell her to go away or whatever, she always picked me for a job. But it felt like that. And like that kind of 
that darkness inside me. And then, there's, you know, she actually used to bring in fresh underwear for me every day. So she had a bag on her desk and in it was a fresh towel and a fresh cloth and a pair of underwear. And she taught me how to wash myself. And like that darkness that I had inside of me, Miss Arkinson became a light within that darkness that actually I carried with me, not just in school, but at night when I was lying in bed and there was stuff going on at my home, and I was scared. She was there with me. It's almost reminiscent of uh, Roald Dahl's Matilda. I loved... Uh, so, like, you know, yeah, I loved I loved Roald Dahl as a young girl. And I, one of the gifts that my dad gave me, actually, was reading. So, like, that was a, such a blessing in my life that my dad was an avid reader, and so was I from as young as I can remember. But, miss, but teachers particularly, I think... Sometimes they so they can be so focused on like getting the points or getting the kids to read or getting kids to write, they can forget that like they impact can impact a child forever. So like Mr. Pickering and Miss Arkinson, they became a light that I carried around with me for the rest of my life. And that light, when you don't have it at home, your parents are not giving it to you. And the teachers can actually provide you with some stability inside for you to navigate the world from. And that's what they did for me. So sure, like, I'm are, so grateful for them. Katrina, for are, are, are you under pressure for time? Would you be able to stay with me if I just took a quick commercial break? Because I, I want to come back to the, the, the positive element of, of life and the study and, and the achievements. Yeah. And, and I want to leave the poverty thing behind. But I am struck by one thing you've said, just to finish this poverty section, if you like. Uh, something you said really resonated with me. Poverty has layers. We were probably yeah. the most extreme. No food, not washed, nits. Kids don't want to play with you. So it's horrible because not only are you suffering at home, uh, I was also going to school and being on the outside. Sometimes teachers would treat me that way as well and expect me to deliver a perform in a way that was just beyond me because of what was going on at home. Uh, that makes for compelling. We talk about the book and its availability. Um, uh, I won't ask you to comment on that. It's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, and we'll come back to the bright side of things and these successes in a moment. Thanks for staying okay. with us, Katrina. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818 104 Cork's Red FM. Mick on the Neil Prenderville Show coming up on 10 minutes to 10. Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan is Professor of Psychology in Maynooth and rejoins us on the phone. Thank you, Dr. Katrina. Uh, let, let's move to the positive elements as they began to click into place in your life. And I know there's an element of compassion and or a huge element of compassion for your parents and their position, forgiveness for your parents. But it was your father you know, ultimately or ironically, the man in some ways responsible actually rescued you by getting sober and bringing you to Ireland. Yeah, so my dad, you know, who for some people is the villain of my story as a child, he became the hero. So he moved back to Ireland and he found sobriety and then he actually came. I was on a path of real destruction, taking drugs, drinking, I had an eating disorder. I was really really in the grips of a negative spin. I was turning into my parents, basically, and my dad was, he came to the UK and he said, come home and we will help you. And so I moved back to Ireland when I was uh, 20, 21. And I just, you know, I moved into Dublin 1, into Summerhill. It was, it felt like home, exactly the same community as I'd left in England, you know, good good salt-of-the-earth people. But again, you know, that emptiness, that feeling of like, 
is this it? Is this my life? Even though I was, I had everything that I'd aspired to in terms of like, I was on my social welfare. I had a rental, a rent allowance, a, a flat that was long term. All the things that I kind of thought would give me security and I focused on at a cash in hand job. I just constantly had this feeling like I was empty and, you know, that life wasn't very, you know, fulfilling. And I have, you know, if you, if cleaners, we need cleaners, we need hairdressers, we need everything in this world. I have no judgment for them jobs. But for me, I just felt so unfulfilled. And I was lucky, as I said, that I, when a woman, a woman like me who's been in poverty, we need to rise up. The system needs to rise up to meet her, to in order to empower her to make the changes that will save her and her future family. And like in my case, I was so lucky that I looked for help in a time in Ireland where we were just really investing in poor people. First steps were therapy. So I went down to this lovely little community place, little guy used to sit there, Joe, used to sit there having a fag and a cup of tea every day. You'd pop in and just have a chat. And he'd give you advice on education, employment, you know, uh, your welfare. And I just went into him and I used to pop in and I said, Joe, what is this? And he said, you need counselling. And I said, okay. And within a week... I was getting free counselling in a place in Sheriff, Sheriff Street that was subsidised by the state. And that was the pivotal point for me, because therapy, like we can talk about my education success for years, but like when you've been through trauma, you definitely need to heal. And I needed to heal as a human being, as well as learn uh, and become educated and employed. So that was a real start for me. Because the, st- the like, start of therapy is education in itself, isn't it? There's an old saying, when you're yes. drowning in the river, you have to be an active participant in your own rescue. So you, you, yes. need, you need to want to better yourself, but you need to uh, subsume that education. And you've said uh, you've had two lives, a lives up to the point where uh, one previous life and then a life at the point where your mind was open to education. Yeah. And you know what? It's 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 not easy. Like it wasn't easy. Like I still struggle. I still struggle with the things that I've been through. Like I'm not like, oh, well, I'm all perfect now and everything is wonderful. Like my foundations are still healing at the end of the day, and they probably will be for the rest of my life. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book because you don't just go to Trinity College and get a PhD and all of a sudden you're this amazing fine person. Like I still have all of the, the shook stuff inside of me that would have come from my childhood and my own experiences as a, as a young woman. But so, and, and I really want to say this, that, you know, it's not all like, I think choice is a myth that's perpetuated by the middle classes a lot of the time. Like, you know, I didn't choose the bad life and I really didn't choose the good life either. It was like being on a ship and on a sea and you're just getting taken from pillar to post. And luckily, it just at one particular point in my life, I was open to change and that change was available to me. Now, you do have to commit to therapy. You do, And I'm not undermining my own commitments because I did do it. But I also left and I also messed up loads of times. Like in my book, I talk about, I get into Trinity, I'm in the Trinity Access Program, I'm flying, I'm learning that I'm this intelligent human being that I never knew. And then just before my exams, I go out on a bender and I decide (laughs) to leave. I decide to leave. And only for the woman who ran the course, she came to my little flat in Summerhill and said, I am not letting you leave. I would not be where I am today. So the reality is, like it isn't... Sometimes it's just accidental and sometimes you just need people to drag you along. As a, as a professor of psychology, uh, Katrina, with, with a yes. professional focus on addiction, uh, what, why is it, do you think, that drugs are seen by most as a personal failing rather than, uh, you know, having more complex issues than just 
greed or avarice or need or selfishness? I think it's, I mean, we, we criminalise. So, like, in terms of the decriminalisation stuff, I, I, I'm kind of on the fence around that conversation. So, But we, we, we moralise addiction. We moralise addiction and depression. 100%. Depression, we moralise it. Get out of bed, go on a run, eat better, do better, as if people have control over themselves. Like, we, we overestimate control in human beings. And I actually think that's we need to think that we have control over ourselves because the idea that we don't is just really scary for us as a, as a, as a, as a humankind. The idea that there's powers that drive us that we can do nothing about I think is just really scary. And so with addiction, it just, I think it's an easier, it's easier for us to say that person made bad choices. There's no person in addiction I know who chose to be, to destroy their lives. I, I, I want to move on to onto the book briefly, Katrina, if we can. Yeah. And I don't want the interview to leave any impression that I was demonising your parents because your mother would have I been know. judged uh, very harshly, more so than, than your dad, I would believe, uh, for being an addict. That's a different topic. Yeah. Uh, you know, how, how, do, how do we help uh, women in that position? Women. But the writing yeah. in the book has transformed how you felt about your mother in particular yeah. because you did love your parents and they were wonderful oh. parents when they weren't addicted to drugs or alcohol. Yeah, I, it was very... They were wonderful people when they were addicted and when they weren't. They were always wonderful people. The reality is, though, like my dad got sober and kind of stopped, whereas my mom could never get sober. So it was very difficult for me to actually heal because she just continued to cause carnage, like car crashes. <laughs> it was really, really difficult. So like with my mom, it was very hard for her to become like static in my mind for me to actually heal. But when I wrote the book... What was really lovely was the rebalancing of my perception of my mom. I think I had that view as well, that a mother should be, a mother yeah. should be more than a father. Well, once again, once again our that. phone line is, is failing, Katrina, but I, I want to almost finish with this and then we'll mention the book. Uh, my yeah. dad was sick, my mom was sick, they were mentally unwell. I'm more angry at the way the system, system treated us than with them. The healthcare yeah. workers who roughly handled your unconscious father, a told-you drug-addicted mother who'd just given birth on the bathroom floor that she shouldn't be allowed to have children. The police who raided the house and treated the children not as victims, but as vermin. The social services who sent the children back home to be abused and neglected. Uh, so let's get to the book because it's, it's going to be an important read for some people. Uh, by the way, if any of the issues that we've brought up here have... Uh, uh, have triggered you in any way or are affecting you in any way, please uh, call the Samaritans on 116123 and they'll get you all the support and help you need. The Samaritans on 116123. It's been, it's been a fascinating interview. Where is the book available? It's everywhere. It's been number one in Ireland for the last 15 weeks, 20 weeks. It's a bestseller in Ireland, so you'll get it in every bookshop. You can get it on Amazon. I'm actually doing an event in Cork on the 28th of September in uh, for Tabor for the Tabor group. So if people want to come along to that and meet Where, me, where's the event? Time, it's in. It's for the Tabor group. I'm not sure the name of the place. <laughs> I'll post it on my social media there, and I'll okay. send it on to you so that you could maybe showcase it. So if people want to come along and get a book signed, they can. But it's in every big bookshop, every bookshop, and it's available on, online okay, that's, as well. That's possibly in Tabor Lodge, but we'll clarify that as soon as you uh, as soon as you publish it. Uh, yeah. It's been great to talk to you, Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan, Professor of Psychology in Maynooth. Uh, congratulations on the book. It's called Poor and is available in all good bookstores. Thank you for coming on the program. This morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks. News at 10 is next. Now, the Neil Prenderville Show, Red FM.
Our phone lines are open on 0868104. Sorry, uh, 0818104106. I'm giving out the wrong one. The phones are 0818104106. And by text or WhatsApp, SMS or WhatsApp, 0868104106. Got a text on the uh, Gilligan documentary last night. I couldn't watch that programme on Virgin last night. I wonder if uh, Gilligan was paid for it. If so, I definitely won't be watching it. Well, Virgin Media have said that they, he was absolutely not paid for the 40 hours of interviews that were conducted with him. Uh, And it seemed to me, having watched it, that he was enjoying it. Uh, Not that he was glorifying the the crime days, uh, but that he has uh, reconciled himself with it. And uh, there was almost a, a nostalgic, romantic tinge to his looking back at all of the pain and suffering that he caused. And uh, it was really shocking, though, when uh, when he was asked, uh, "What did you feel uh, on the uh, on the day Veronica Girin was killed?" And he said, "I felt absolutely nothing." Uh, Katrina O'Sullivan, uh, our last interviewee, she's the teacher we all needed. Said a texter, "She came from nothing to realise that everyone can achieve anything by hard work from poverty." Uh, well done. She's a very good example to all, and congratulations to her. Uh, on the subject of Debs. Two family members of mine, uh, this is a texter, had their Debs recently in a Cork hotel and were very intimidated by a female security lady on a power trip. She questioned their ID by saying it was fake and was constantly following them for the night. Then when everything was over, one of them was up in her room talking to her friends and security came up to tell them to keep the noise down. I can understand that, but the same female security guard banged uh, barged into the room and started opening all the doors and the wardrobe. I'm sorry, but I don't think this is allowed. Uh, as she opened the wardrobe, the Deb's dress was hanging up in there and she caught the dress in the door and it ripped. We have gotten no satisfaction from the hotel and that is very disappointing. Other texts uh, from uh, previous programmes, I do like to try and get to them if at all we can. People have made the effort after all. Hi Mick, uh, how can they add more TDs to the government because of the population increase? Yet they cannot add more school buses due to the population increase. TDs, no problem. Buses, no, we can't afford that. Our children still do not have a bus seat. Uh, said Olive and Ballon Hassing. We've had a few texts on that issue, actually. Uh, why are they not increasing services, uh, you know, for social services, for health services? Uh, you know, with, with this increase in population, there should be a consequent increase in services. But no, uh, as soon as they find a thing in the con- Constitution to say, yeah, we'll have more politicians, we'll save a few seats, and we'll get a few more, and uh, we might even get that elusive overall majority. Uh, then, uh, of course, they're, they're going to go ahead with that. Um, here's a strange one. Happy to do it, though. Hi, Mick. Could you please mention our annual cat show in Skullvurragan Small in Blarney? It's all happening on this Sunday, the 10th, please. There will be over 70 beautiful cats on the show. Uh, it's from 12.30 to 4.30, and it's a heaven for all cat lovers. So said Lavinia. Wouldn't be my cup of tea, but there are many, many cat lovers out there. If you want to see 70 beautiful cats on show, this is happening from 12.30 to 4.30. And uh, that is happening at Skolvuragan Small in Blarney, all happening on this Sunday, the 10th. Uh, 
Let's go to a text from yesterday. Uh, regarding the protest against the book, this book is gay. As far as I'm aware, the protesters want the book out of the kids' section. They're not against it being stocked in the library in the adult section. Please clarify. As you said, it's not wanted in the library by the protesters. Uh, that wasn't me, probably Neil. I love the show, uh, and I'm not far right. I just think it's wrong to have it in the kids' section, as do many. On the 14 extra TDs, do we not have enough Muppets in the Doyle? Uh, on an air raid siren problem uh, did anybody hear that siren that sounded like an air raid siren going off uh, I woke up to it uh, about 5 or 10 minutes ago 11.30am yesterday I'm in Black Rock did anyone hear uh, an air raid siren going off uh, on the Maui wildfires America is giving billions to Ukraine but can't help their own what a joke something is very suspicious is going on there and we spoke to uh, Deirdre O'Riordan O'Riordan yesterday about her son Peter who's a former Virgin Media expose presenter and the efforts he's making on the ground and the good vibes he's giving for the Irish nation uh, in what was kind of a distrusting atmosphere, uh, the locals uh, not having much trust in white people but certainly getting a new look uh, at what Irish and the Irish giving mentality uh, is like uh, another texter however is critical there, how do they plan on getting the container into Lahina? Uh, apparently nothing's been let into Lahina. they've no internet Nobody seems to be allowed in to help them. Uh, there's a YouTube that we should all check out called Hawaii Real Estate on YouTube, which may shed more light on that. Happy to get those texts done. And thank you to everyone who texted in on 0868104106. Back to our phone lines and Robert Bailey. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Mick. How are you? I'm good. Now, we spoke today about cyberbullying. That probably wasn't around in, in, in your day, but you were bullied at the age of 14, 15 in public school in East Cork. That's correct, uh, and it was an everyday occurrence, it was an every week occurrence, month in, month out, year in, year out. Textbooks were being stolen so I couldn't study for exams. Teachers watched on with fun in their eyes and gear what was going on. It would do nothing. You, um, you were left there. Are you, st- you were standing in the wind, Robert? It's very hard to hear you. Okay, one second, one second. Just better? Oh, much better. Yeah, just for a second there. It's much better now. Yeah. Um, and teachers watched weekly as the suffering was ongoing. As I said, textbooks were being stolen, so any state exam that... Why, I, why, why would teachers watch on with Lee? Are they not there to keep order and keep everybody educated and engaged with the class and not allow bullying where, well, where they see it? That's what I thought was the case. But back then, this was a secondary school in Middleton, which were, which had a, a very bad name. All right, let's not get any um, more specific, shall we? Yeah, yeah, I won't. No, I won't. And um, I reported to my father. My father went in and sat with the principal. And back then, teachers were on 90-foot pedestals. So whatever came out of the teacher's mouth was gospel. Half the time, they wouldn't do anything to stop it. Uh, no, we're going to have a serious trouble with this phone line, I, I think. Because Robert, tell you what, I'm going to take a commercial break and we're going to call you back so in the hope we get a better line because I'd really like to talk to you. All right, just, okay. ha- ha- just hang up there and we'll call you straight back. Thanks. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818 104 106.
Cork's Red FM. Now we're finding it impossible to get back through to uh, Robert Bailey and uh, Robert if you're listening we're trying to get back through to you. Uh, we will talk to you again before the end of the programme. Uh, we will probably need a better line uh, than the one we had though. Uh, so uh, if you can move to a, maybe a different area we will get back to you and we will speak to you again on your story and on the bullying and what, where it's led you in life. Uh, I believe uh, you've applied for over 550 jobs. Uh, now I'm joined by a musician and a gentleman who is very much in the news today uh, and all about a uh, really about a spat uh, that happened on radio and that is Brian Warfield of the Wolf Towns. Good morning to you Brian. Good morning Mick, how are you doing? Uh, I'm good, I actually worked with you guys many years ago in Cleo's nightclub in Bandon in the Monster Arms oh, Hotel. Yeah. That's right, I remember that place. Yeah, there was, a, there was a good Sunday night vibe going on there back in the day of uh, Johnny yeah. oh, Logan winning God. Eurovision and all that. Yeah, I loved Bandon. Fantastic. Yeah, al- always a great gig. Uh, for th- for those who say that the Wolf Tones have had their day and their heyday is over, and now it's just smaller gigs. Nothing could be further from the truth when you look at Electric Picnic. Um, wh- when were you booked for it? How did it come about? Were you expecting the huge popularity, the photograph in front of the uh, of the morning papers, uh, I, which I've asked people to go and see if they don't believe you got a huge crowd. The photograph says a thousand words. There's many, many more times people outside the tent than could possibly have fit into it. Yeah, well, um, we reckon about 30-odd thousand uh, eventually because the, the tent actually held 14,000. And uh, if you look outside the tent, there was much more than that outside. But there's a great um, there's a great area of view um on the on the up there on the on the internet, and it it shows the people leaving all the areas around uh, around the park, around the area, all converging on the tents of the wolf tones, and it was just amazing to see it because it's done in quick time, and you see it, it's like a flowing river coming from every even the even the big wheels shut down uh, when when we went on stage and. I think Rick actually said, um, oh, my God, where are they all gone? And, and, and he said, they're all going to see the wolf tones. So he was left with uh, a very small crowd <laughs> after uh, we were uh, announced to be on stage. So it was, it was just phenomenal. We were booked, uh, by the way, back, um, back in February this year, I think, or before. And uh, we were asked to do it. We were asked to keep it a secret. Uh, not to let it out until um, until they announced it in April, I think it was. Uh-huh. But um, we are asked to do it, and uh, we are very excited about it. We expect to fill. We expected to fill the tent. No doubt about that. We did. We expected um, that we filled the tent, but we didn't expect the enormous crowd that came along on that uh, that, that uh, afternoon, or yesterday afternoon, or Sunday afternoon. It was just unbelievable. And, you know, the decibels were so high coming from the crowd because they were singing every song. Uh, and I I had a monitor on stage and it was so loud I couldn't hear my monitor. It was just unbelievable. And they were singing much, much faster than or uh, louder than we were. So it wasn't us leading them, it was them leading us. Yeah, the Beatles said that about their time in Shea Stadium. Actually, when Garth Brooks came in the early 90s to do his 14 or 15 gigs in the then Point Depot, 
Uh, in later documentaries, he would say, we just travelled to Ireland to start the songs and allow the crowd to sing our songs back to us. Yeah, well, that's what happened, certainly on Sunday. I I just couldn't hear uh, anything coming from the monitor. I was totally at sea. And, uh, you know, I was just hoping I could keep time <laughs> with what was going on. Because keep they the notes right. They were at a different level than I was. The decibels were huge. It was deafening. Unbelievable. Yeah, I, let, let, let's get to the heart of this little spat. I wouldn't call it more than a spat. It, it, it's, it's hardly grown into a huge controversy. Uh, but your song, uh, Celtic Symphony, got to number one after the women's, women's soccer team sang it in their dressing room when they'd secured a spot at the World Cup. Uh, now, there's also a documentary, by the way, starting on RTE this evening at 7pm about your song, Kamauchi Black and Tans. But what happened with you and Joe Duffy, who, by the way, is a good friend to Neil in this programme, uh, whenever he's needed? What happened between you two? Well, he basically, he was saying untruths that were blackening the group. I don't like to be villainized on, on radio. And that's what he was trying to do. Like, we've worked very hard over the years to have a good name a professional name and a, a good cohort of people that follow the group. I don't like them to be insulted and I don't like uh, my group to be insulted either. So, like, that's what he tried to do. He was bringing on people to say, like, um, he also said that our music was rubbish. I don't think he ever heard any of our music. If he did, he wouldn't say that. He also said that we are living off the backs of... Uh, of uh, slaughter in the north of Ireland. That's untrue. We were we were around long before the troubles ever ha- happened in Ireland. And we were, were around a long time after it. So, you know, we reflect what happened in Ireland. We don't, we don't, uh, uh, we don't, uh, we don't uh, tell what's going to happen in Ireland. We reflect it. And, uh, you know, that's all reflected in, um, in, in Celtic Symphony. I, I think I went through this before with you. You know, it's a song, it's graffiti on the wall, it's telling the story of the Irish in Glasgow. And, uh, you know, when I started writing that song way back in 87, um, there was very few people wearing Celtic jumpers in Ireland. Uh, they were all wearing Man United or Liverpool or all those English clubs. And I wanted to reconnect Ireland with uh, Celtic because Celtic and the people of Glasgow and the Irish communities there and the diaspora had uh, supported Ireland in every, every uh, struggle we had. They supported our civil rights movement. They gave money. They helped getting people out. Uh, they helped, uh, you know, getting the Birmingham Six rights for uh, civil rights for the people. They were there giving money. And not alone that, they were supporting with their voices. So I think they deserve the line that they, they got. And, uh, you know, when I saw that graffiti on the wall, I remember I, I, I said, you know, I was, I was trying to write the song at the time. I said, you know, this has got to be part of the song because this reflects what the, the Glasgow Irish people are all about, what the Celtic football team is all about. I think Bertie Ahern was on yesterday and um, he said he, he sat in, uh, uh, he couldn't get tickets on the Celtic side of it. He had to sit in the Rangers side of the uh, of the football game, Celtic and Rangers, and he said what they were singing was horrifying compared to what uh, a little line out of one song is. And I think he was right about that. It's a line in the song. It's a happy song. It's a good song, and people love it. And I don't think you can tell the people of Ireland 
not to sing a song because if you do, they're going to sing it louder and clearer. And they did. I think they did in Electric Picnic. Brian, correct me if I'm wrong. Was it Gay Bourne who first uh, coined the term rebel songs as, uh, in, you know, in reference to the repertoire that the Wolf Tones do? Well, I, I don't think so. It's been around for a while. I have woodcuts from, um, from you know, uh, I think Jack Beagie Yates uh, has a, a woodcut of uh, ballad singers outside the Galway races. And he, they have a, the ballad singer has a crowd around him. And he, 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 uh, kept, the caption on the thing is uh, the ballad singer singing a good old rebel song. Mm. Yeah, like, I mean, essentially, every chant at every football club uh, across the channel, uh, you know, Reds versus Blues or Blues versus Reds or whatever it's going to be, uh, every chant is, is is a rebel action. It's a rebel chant, club versus club. Um, oh, yeah. I, I remember Tommy Bourne, your, your your lead singer, saying one time, these are not rebel songs. These are songs that uh, that reflect our history. Absolutely, and you know that's that's what the Wolf Tones are all about. You know, our, our songs are the history of Ireland, and uh, there's no, you know, there's no part of our history that has been left out in song, whether it be about emigration, whether it be about 1798, whether it be about the Irish uh, Holocaust, the awful famine that we had here. I have a song at the moment about um, the ship that came into Cork. Uh, in 1847, bringing loading down with with food, uh, who was brought in by Father Matthew of Cork, and uh, Captain Robert Bennett Forbes was the captain of that ship, and the, his effort uh, initiated a, a response from America when he told a story that uh, brought a hundred thousand tons of food to Ireland, the first great humanitarian uh, effort between two countries that ever happened up to them. Right, and how how would you answer this? And this is not an accusation, so I have to frame it as a question. How, how would you answer those critics of the Wolf Tones who, who say these so-called rebel songs are rabble-rousing and that you guys are living off the sores of, of old Ireland? I'm sure you'll have an eloquent answer. Yeah, I could tell you something. If, if I heard that once, I heard that a million times. When we were in Parky Kiev, uh, you know, the, the, we were on the Late Late Show soon after that with Gay Bourne and... Uh, they were going crazy about us singing the nation once again and all that kind of thing. So um, it's not a new thing like God Save Ireland or any of those great uh, Irish songs. But, you know, they were saying, I remember uh, on the, the radio there, uh, Gay Bourne, of course, had plants in there. And uh, I think it was uh, two, two brothers uh, from Cork who were printing five-pound notes to undermine the state. They were workers' party at the time. And one of them go up and say, I saw you all in Parky Keeve. Oh, my God, you had them all reared up to go up the north and take up a gun and shoot everybody. You know, and that's... Is that, you know, is that an unfair reflection of the Wolf Tones and their representation of Irish history? Absolutely. It's it's totally wrong. It, it, uh, you know, it villainizes the group. And I think people have always been scared of the Irish song and the Irish story. It is our history. And when your history was not allowed to be told. The song was very important. And it was very important, like, so much so that I, I have clippings. I can send you two of them, or three of them, uh, down there, put it on your website. I have clippings from papers back in the 1870s, which said, uh, you know, um, 
this group in Clonmel were uh, marching behind a, a guy who had an accordion and he was asked to play O'Donnell Abu. And uh, when he played O'Donnell Abu, all the crowd sang along with him. So he was taken uh, taken prisoner and brought to, uh, brought to the uh, prison and he was put on trial for singing a seditious song. Now, what was wrong with Irish people singing an Irish song? It wasn't allowed. Another one was, uh, I think it was somewhere in Waterford, where um, uh, this, this guy, was, uh, this group of fellows was singing a song that had a line as, we'll not give up all Ireland without striking another blow. And for that, they were taken to uh, prison. They got 10 days in prison or to pay 10 pounds. Now, how would they have ten pounds back in eighteen forty-seven or nineteen nineteen seventies? They wouldn't have had but, that kind of. But money. Is, is it, Brian, that your songs might be seen as a call to action rather than a song like, uh, as recently done by Rod Stewart? The, Jim McCann had a brilliant version uh, of Grace, which is about Grace Gifford and Joseph Mary Plunkett, and and Joseph Mary Plunkett being led out to be assassinated by. Uh, the British rulers at the time. How is that song uh, not said to be seditious? When is it because it's accurately reflecting the truth, rather than, uh, as might be said, uh, a call to action in a, in a republican sort of ideal? Well, I think uh, when uh, Ryan Tobity had um, he had uh, Rod Stewart on there, he was hailing him for uh, for bringing Irish history to the world. Now. They are villainizing the Wolf Tones for doing the very same thing. Now they they pick out at all stages. They pick out one song. Like we had a song called "The Rifles of the IRA," and uh, of course they picked on that. They picked on many other songs. Yeah, the up the rather the broad black brimmer of the IRA is another one, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and uh, I mean, there's many many songs. You know, the people of Cork when the Black and Towns burnt down the, the city of Cork. Uh, you know, the Black and Tans weren't very liked uh, in, by the people of Cork and never liked by the people of Dublin. My own mother remembered them. And, uh, you know, so, like, the, the hate for the, the injustice that they brought to our country uh, is embedded in the Irish psyche. And I think, um, I think you know, when they're hailing Rod Stewart for doing the very thing that the Wolf Tones have done for 60 years and they, they can't have a good word to say about the group, it's unbelievable that they can have two different opinions. It's hypocritical in every way. Well, I, I think the people voted with their feet, with, with, with their ears and with their voices at Electric Picnic. If you guys were drowned out. Um, there, I, I, I know it's a, it's a funny little aside, uh, but your song, Kamauchi Black and Tans, has been changed in a Cork pub um, because of the great sunshine we're enjoying here uh, today, Brian. Uh, I saw one Cork pub yesterday with advertising, get out the back and tan. <laughs> that's great fun um, yeah well I think you know that we, the Irish people have always kind of had, had fun like look at look at the look at the you know the the, the kind of uh, half type of uh, rebel songs like the peeler and the goat where the the the, 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 the goat is going along is the rest of for be, you know for being a for being a a, a, a crappie or a or a, a, a you know a, a rebel in some way and it, it kind of laughs at the situation. And there's many, many songs in Ireland about that, you know. So I, th- I think we've, we have a great way of uh, handling a situation. Now, I don't think, uh, I don't think people 
you know, take of the Ua of the Ra in any way, uh, in a violent way, that they're going to go anywhere and create uh, trouble or go up the north or anything like that. Well, what it, about uh, you two Sunday, Bloody Sunday? Yeah, well, it, they said afterwards it wasn't a rebel song, so I don't know about that song. Um, you know, John Lennon w- wrote a great song about the very same thing, and I think John Lennon's song was... Uh, was very much to the point and a great song. Was Act of um, Ireland back to the Irish? No, no. That, that was a McCartney was, song, wasn't it? That was Paul McCartney, yeah. Now, uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday was uh, John Lennon. And uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday when the, uh, when the Paris they went wild, shooting indiscriminately at man, woman and child. By the daily way that was Hanky, he tried to anoint the dead, but the soldiers kept on shooting, kept on firing evil lead. I mean, that's, that's very descriptive of what some bloody Sunday was. It, it's, it, there's no doubt, Brian, that the English occupation of this island has, has left scars that still remain to this day. And, and there's no doubt that, uh, that that period in history is sanitised from the English education system. So um, you'll probably agree with me that the Wolf Tones are serving uh, a natural need to keep people informed of the events that happened here over 800 years. I think that's the importance of the ballad and the song. You know, like, like songs like, uh, you know, um, Grace or, you know, the Foggy Jew and all those great songs. It, it, it gives people an opening into Irish history. And I, I know many people who, um, who, through hearing our songs, have researched it further and gone into it further to read about it and, and to educate themselves on on buying books about Irish history and this, that and the other. And that's the importance of the song. It's not, a song is like three or four minutes. Uh, and uh, I, well, I'm a songwriter, so I try to get as much as possible in, into the three or four minutes that I can that will explain the story. Now, when I wrote Celtic Symphony, it was about six minutes long and I had to cut a verse out of it and a chorus out of it because it was too long and nobody's going to listen to six minutes seven minutes of a song. Maybe they would have, but, you know, it's the same with uh, Joe MacDonald is seven and a half minutes. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's telling the story. But it is difficult to concise the story uh, down. But I always hope that it's an opening uh, to people to take it further, to read further about it, to learn the story, the background, the history. And, you know, okay... I know my history very well, but I'm not going to shoot anybody up the north. I'm, in fact, I, I, you know, I, I'd like to go up there on many, many occasions up there with many, many uh, people from the Unionist persuasion. And, uh, you know, I've had chats with them and blah, 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 and everything else. The reasonable people when you talk to them one, but one to one. But, uh, you know, there is a, a kind of herd mentality when, when it comes to marching and... Uh, bonfires and yeah. things like that. So, so uh, I, I suppose the leading question here is, do you think there will ever be peace and reconciliation between the Wolf Tones and Joe Duffy? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you, you know, I, I have nothing against Joe Duffy. I think Joe Duffy had something against the Wolf Tones. Uh, I have nothing against Joe Duffy at all. Um, you know, but I don't think it's his job uh, as a presenter uh, to uh, go out there and criticise the group on air. I don't think it's a, it's, a, it's a mediator between two people speaking rather than him being the, the accuser or the, uh, the uh, 
uh, or the person that's going to uh, slag off a group. I think I said to my mother, I said, you're getting paid. Uh, three hundred and fifty-one thousand for slagging off the Wolfhounds. I mean, geez, that's an overpriced. Brian, I, I believe the Wolfhounds are making a big announcement tomorrow. I don't suppose there's any sort of exclusive we could get or a little hint we could get. Somebody's obviously going to uh, um, see the attraction that you had at Electric Picnic with that huge crowd, uh, many, many more times the capacity of the tent, and say, "Okay, there's a commercial decision here. Are we looking at Croke Park or Parky Keeve or headlining Slane or?" I, I don't I don't know. I don't know really. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's you know, next year's a sixtieth anniversary, so I think we're gonna do um we're gonna do a couple of uh, major things across the country and we're doing some in America now in in March and uh, so we're gonna recognise I mean, there's very few people in the uh, in the world, musical groups or otherwise, that are together um for for 60 years. I think it's a milestone in Irish uh, musical history and I think it's a milestone definitely for us. You know, how we kept on across those years when we are blacklisted on radio, when we are put down at every uh, every year almost. Uh, you know, we got the criticism about this, that and the other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we brought out songs for peace. I, I wrote a song of liberty, which is a uh, a great song for peace in the world. I send it to every radio station in Ireland, and I don't think I got one play. You know what I mean? So do they want peace? I send it to every every uh, radio program in RTE, and uh, I don't I don't think I got a play. So okay. I don't want peace. We'll have to leave it there, Brian. If if I if I was asking you, and you're probably going to be biased here, who do you think Ireland's greatest ever ballad singer was or is? Tommy Bourne. Tommy Bourne. He'd definitely be in my top, probably top two. Would yeah, you yeah. Would you be offended if I let Liam Clancy shade it, just just yeah, by just well, by one little whisker? Yeah, well, I, I I'm I'm a great fan of Liam too, so yeah, I, I wouldn't begrudge it. They're definitely two of the best, if not yeah. the two best. Can we agree on that? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, Brian. Nice to talk to you. Brian Warfield of the Wolf Tones. Big announcement coming tomorrow. RT documentary starting tonight at 7pm about their song Kamoji Black and Tans. That's a four-part series looking at the social and cultural history, the myths and the quirky tales uh, of the rebel anthem Kamoji Black and Tans. Brian Warfield, thank you and good morning. And thank you, good morning, Mike. And thank you for the time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0818-104-106. Red FM. And a very good morning from the Neil Prandival Show. It is 17 and a half minutes to 11 o'clock. This is Mick Mulcahy. Dan is on line one. We've lots of texts about the Wolf Towns as well. Good morning, Dan. Uh, good morning, Mick. You're a fan? Uh, I am, of course. I am. And I would listen to all their songs. And you mentioned uh, Liam Clancy there. He, he does a fantastic uh, version of uh, a song I called... Uh, one of the great songs that he uh, and to, oh sorry I have it the Patriot, it was called the Patriot Game. Yeah, he does a fan- fantastic version of that. Liam Clancy. That's a famous song, but that was done by Bob Dylan, I think, as well, wasn't it? Was uh, it? Yeah, yeah. One of those. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you know that the, the the Clancy's gave Bob Dylan his first start, and he he'll credit the Clancy's yeah, and Tommy Wakeham yeah, with uh, being the first to right. give him the leg up in uh, in in America. Um, so you think these songs are our history? What about those who who, who throw the line? Uh, the Wolf Tones, you know, they're dripping in gold and living off the sores of, of old yeah. Ireland. 
singing their I, rebel songs. My answer to that is that, and I get said said to the people up in the north after the seventies and eighties, what happened? People should read the history of North of Ireland. They should read a book called Burnout. And that, it says how the troubles began. That's Michael McCann's book. Good lad, yeah, that's the book, yeah. Read that book and then come back and, and they'll they'll have a different view of the troubles in the north. Okay, so that's, that. that's Burnout yeah. by Michael McCann. Uh, yeah, a fantastic book. And it, it is the history of what happened up in Harlem and Wolf when the Catholics were thrown into the into into the sea and and belted with nuts and bowls and, and and they could get no walk up in the north of Ireland mm. before sixty nine and seventy, and maybe after as well. And don't you know what calls me by now, Mick? I must say this right. I attended uh, the hunger strike parade in Cork City, thousands there, and I said they surely have something about that on the 6 o'clock news or the 9 o'clock news in RT. Okay, when you say the hunger strike march, is, is this a commemoration march uh, to, to mark exactly. the anniversary but, of the hunger strikes in the H-blocks? Yeah, yeah. And RT, they hardly mentioned it. I know, they didn't mention it on the TV anyway, on the news, mm-hmm. on the Sunday night news or the 9 o'clock news. Okay. Did not mention it. Okay, there, there, there's another Bob Dylan line which 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 uh, let me let me see. It's from uh, the album uh, Infidels, and it comes from a song called Sweetheart Like You, and it goes like right. this: They say that patriotism is the last refuge to which a scoundrel clings. In other words, when there's nowhere to go, that patriotism yeah. that they'll grab onto patriotism and rally for that cause. What would you say to that? I don't know. I would look. I have my own views, and I just said not I, calling a scoundrel, I, by the way. I know. I would say to you, Mick, is that look before we talk about the North of Ireland and things like that people should actually look at the history. What happened up there? That's my view. They should look at the history. What happened up there? What, what, what happened up there is war, and there was major atrocities committed by both sides. Uh, you know, I talk, yeah, thousands, I know that, but I'm just, thousands of people. I'm just, I know that. I'm just talking about what happened from twenty-two to sixty-nine and that kind of stuff. What happened to Catholics up in North of Ireland? Have they moved on people, since since the advent of the late John? Yeah, they Hume? have, they have, they have, they have, they have. I was up there once a couple of times now, and look, I think they they, they have improved an awful lot. I think they have it as well, actually. And okay. then you, and one more thing I must say now: I know people that they think Winston Churchill was a fantastic man. When Winston Churchill 22, didn't like the Irish at all. No, and when Terence McSweeney was on his hunger strike, uh, Winston Churchill did a big speech in some hall in Aberdeen in front of all the Tory people, and he was he didn't he wasn't very nice to McSweeney. And Terence McSweeney was nine weeks on hunger strike that time in Aberdeen when Winston Churchill spoke. And you're was, you're obviously of uh, of Republican persuasion, Dan. Uh, uh, where, where would you think so? I would think so. Well, if. <laughs> But you know what I mean? I, I just, we must never forget our history, right? Because, I don't know, we have been trodden down an awful lot. And the superpowers, look, England, look, England, France. Like, I was watching a documentary, I know I've gone off the, look at what France have did all over in in Algeria and Indochina and Al- all different places. What France do, and they're still doing things like that. Like they, they, they have, they have 
1500 troops in one of the countries in Africa at the moment and and it's full of minerals on the ground and wealth and all. Yeah, but and you, 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 could, you could level the same criticism at America who, who have essentially been at war in Afghanistan now for 40 years. They've been there covertly and now they're there overtly. Yeah, but see, look, I'm only watching something now because who's after that now? Uh, I was watching something a couple of weeks ago about the bushes when they went into Iraq, uh, went into Iraq and, and Afghanistan and all all the lives that they lost, American lives and all the other lives that they destroyed in places in Iraq. Yeah, well, as you say, it's, it's, it's a different topic, but that will probably go down in history as the greatest foreign policy disaster of all time. Oh, disaster, disaster, completely, Mick. Disaster. Yeah, yeah. and, and, and it, people... And, you, and people, they're, they're wondering where the refugees are coming from. They're, they're, they're coming from these disastrous foreign policy decisions. Of course they are. Taken, taken they are. over many, many years. Years and years, that's right. And sure, look, for France, like France, in France at the moment, they have a lot of people from their, from their countries that they conquer and destroyed as well. Dan, Dan, we leave it there because we're we're opening up stuff we could talk till midday about, and I've got lots of texts that I need, I need to get to. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Mick. Appreciate Thanks it. That bye book bye. recommended bye by bye. Dan is Burnout bye. by Michael McCann. If you've an interest uh, in things Northern Ireland, uh, some texts on uh, the Wolf Tones. The Wolf Tones are the best band to ever come out of Ireland. They are great ambassadors for the country. I spent twenty years in New York, and they used to play in my neighbourhood Woodside twice a year. It was the hottest ticket in town. If there's anyone out there who hasn't seen them, and I, I would urge you to go. They're not just popular with older people like me. My daughter and her friends are listening to them now too. Uh, I make the Wolf Tones are legends, says Sean. I make the Wolf Tones incident perfectly illustrates the yawning disconnect between the Irish elite and the ordinary Irish people, says Richie and Toker. That's um, that's a pretty good text there. The uh, Wolf Tones incident perfectly illustrates the yawning disconnect between the Irish elite and the ordinary Irish people. Thank you, Richie and Toker, for that one. So proud of the support of the Wolf Tones at the Electric Picnic. They're a band I've followed all my life. Please keep our Irish history alive through your music, says Todd and Douglas. Uh, my son was out there gigging Electric Picnic. He said it was the best concert he's ever been to, and he's 26. Uh, how do the Wolf Tones feel about the current situation regarding immigration in Ireland? Plenty of tricolour waving going on, uh, says uh, another texter. Another texter really liked the interview and uh, asked, would I ask Brian to give us a blast for us? Absolutely legendary. They might be um, very, very good when they get up on stage, but not many uh, musicians or singers would like to sing down a phone to seventy or 80,000 people on a radio station. So to kind of be rude to ask, uh, on the light-up issue, please tell runners and cyclists to wear high-vis vests uh, on roads as the sun can be very blinding uh, in West Cork, especially in the evenings, and visibility is challenged, says Marie. As we move into the, uh, you know, the lower sun altitudes, uh, that can be a problem, mornings and evenings. Uh, and the sun can be very, very blinding. So not bad advice there to tell runners and cyclists to wear high-vis vests on the road as the sun can be very blinding. On the topic of Katrina O'Sullivan, hi Mick, I'm uh, very interested in attending Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan's talk on the 28th of September in Cork. Could you please find out the details of the time and venue? I've read her book and uh, found it to be one of the best books ever and thank you for the great interview you did with her. So the event info is this. 
It's an evening with Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan. It's on the 28th of September. Uh, the Tabor Group, in partnership with UCC School of Applied Psychology, will present an evening with Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan. It will take place in Tabor Lodge Primary Residential Treatment, uh, that building in Belgooley in County Cork. So it's all about Belgooley, County Cork, on the 28th with Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan. Now, if you're interested in attending this event, you need to email sodonoghue at tabergroup.ie. That's S-O-D-O-N-O-G-H-U-E, sodonoghue at tabergroup, T-A-B-O-R-G-R-O-U-P, dot ie so donahu at tabergroup.ie uh, staying uh, lightly on the uh, subject of music maybe not too lightly because we've got a, a serious missing instrument uh, a lost mandolin from the Whitehorse Guitar Club Joe Philpot joins us on the line morning Joe Hey Mick, how are you going? Busy band playing three uh, stages at the Electric Picnic? Yeah, it was a manic uh, day. It was a beautiful day. The weather really worked in our favour. We had three amazing shows. You play the Salty Dog, the Hot Press uh, stage and the Trailer Park stages. Yeah, it was kind of a full-on day. I mean, Salty Dog was was rammed, Trailer Park was rammed, the Hot Press was a nice little smaller, kind of more intimate gig. Uh, you know, so we had a we had a great day there. Really, we covered a lot of ground, literally. <laughs> you, you've been you've been on the program before. I've had about twelve of you in here on at quarter to twelve of a Friday, uh, squeezed yeah. in, into the into the studio. And and what the output is nothing short of top quality. Uh, is is inclusion at three stages at the electric picnic kind of the tacit acceptance now from the uh, you know from the promoting mainstream that what you guys do is beyond good. Well, I, I think, you know, we, we, we definitely are getting into places we don't belong. We just found out, uh, we've just been invited by Michael D. Higgins to play in the Oris Neutron on, on, uh, for Culture Night for him. Um, so, I mean, I don't know what we're doing there, but we're, we're you know, that's, that's the, the corners we're reaching. So in terms of Electric Picnic, I mean, we felt really at home up on those festival stages. I mean, from, from the early days, we kind of felt it would be great to, to be at these festivals and be part of them and to be playing, but to be there to be asked to be there and to be there in such great stages is definitely a big honour for us. For yeah, sure. I, I haven't been backstage at a festival since 1991 and given away my my, uh, my age now. We were guests of Kirsty McCall and Steve Lillywhite back then at, at, uh, at Fela. Uh, and the crack backstage was incredible. Uh, there, there, there was a scene that time where the artists as part of their contract had to come back and do a cover set. Uh, so we had Crowded House playing Elvis Presley. Uh, and wow. that, that was part of the... Con- it was such fun. Uh, the only one allowed to play his own music was Paul Brady, uh, and me and my buddy Martin Mullen were, were you know, with, with, with a few in you. We said, "Come on, come on, you got to sing Arthur McBride," and he did. Oh well, it was it, the greatest treat you could ever have at a concert. What's it like at a concert for musicians these days? Do you wander out and about? Uh, you know, you're you're you're, you're not um, Brad Pitt or anything uh, of that fame level. So can you wander out and about without any trouble? Uh, we can, of course. I mean, but like, we were hanging around with, uh, you know, obviously guys who are mu- have much more of a, a bigger profile than us, but they were all getting a good kick out of us. I mean, Rick Astley came to see us. I today. heard that, Rick Astley. Yeah. He, he, so we, we were kind of having a good a good laugh with him. And, you know, Inhaler, we went to see them. We were chatting to them for a little bit. And all the artists are all... I think the artists enjoyed as much as the punters. I think a lot of the artists float around. It's like an artist anyway. festival backstage, is it? Well, yeah, I mean, like a lot of people don't stay backstage. So backstage can be kind of boring and a little bit kind of like, you know, you're better off kind of seeing music and hanging around and just kind of soaking up the atmosphere. And I think that's what even the, the bigger artists were doing. Everybody was just part of the festival, part of the atmosphere, just kind of soaking it up, seeing music. I mean, the thing is with touring bands when you're on the road, 
you can kind of get a bit institutionalised by your own tour, so you don't get a chance to see many things. So I think what a festival does for artists it allows other artists to watch other bands to kind of go see music they might norm might normally see. So I think it's kind of become much more. I mean, back in the day, there was a bit more kind of like you know them and us in terms of the artists in the crowd. But I think as the years have gone by. Um, you know, bands and musicians are, are as much part of the audience as, as they are yeah. part of the, the festival. Yeah, I, I, I think at my age, I'd prefer side stage. I think that's the that's the good compromise. But of course, we're here for a serious purpose, uh, and you're looking for a hero, a hero who reunites this magical missing musical instrument with its rightful <laughs> owner. Yeah. What well, what happened? Well, in the you know, we played three shows, and every one of Electric Picnic was was incredible in terms of the crew ferrying us around, getting us from stage to stage on time setting us up there are 11 of us on stage there's a lot of moving parts and as the night went on and you know we got a bit more tired um you know uh, one of our instruments was, was was just just found its way somewhere somewhere other than than our our lockup uh, area so brendy he's he's treasured mandolin um has gone walkabout it's a handcrafted eastman and if you check out our socials uh, whitehorseguitarclub.com uh, uh, or any of our facebook twitter or instagram you'll see a picture of it so someone out there might have it, might might not even know they have it. It might be just that sitting in the middle of a field somewhere. But we, we, we'd love yeah. if it came back to them. It, it means a lot to them. So, th- so this, this is like losing your brand new phone time is 100. Well, you know, I mean, instruments have a have a, have a kind of musicians to kind of like form a relationship with their instruments. Yeah, it's got personality. Value. Yeah, but it's sentimental values as well. So, I mean, look, if, if it's there and if someone finds it and comes across it, and there's a white horse guitar sticker on it, so it's kind of uh, fairly obvious. Uh, and it looks, it's a very unique looking instrument as well. So, look, if anyone comes across it or hears of someone who might have, just give us a shout and just reunite. Brother okay. Brandy with you. And prepare for a lifetime supply of good karma. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, and uh, you know, we look. We've got a big tour coming up. We're starting in, in Clears and Kilkenny on the 14th. We our Cork shows, the Opera House, that's sold out. Most of the gigs around the country are sold out in September, October. You can check out our, our all our socials for whatever you might want to want to come see us. It, it, uh, there's very few tickets left. I think in general, I think there's only one or two shows with any tickets left. If you bring back this mandolin, you're in, even if it is sold out. Oh yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. You can come to any gig you want. Um, you know, we we, we welcome uh, anybody who brings that back. Okay, last mandolin. It's Brendy's from the White Horse Guitar Club. It is his beloved mandolin. It's uh, not just a string beauty. It's the heart and soul of the Brendy sound, uh, as watched and listened to by Rick Astley and more over the weekend. It's an Eastman handcrafted mandolin. Keep an eye out for it. I uh, just wish we were a national station, but look, we, we, we cover uh, Cork and beyond, and let's hope somebody can put their finger on it and, and get it back to you guys. Uh, Joe Philpot, Philpot from the White Horse Guitar Club. Thank you very much. Thanks for the Cheers, good morning. News at 11 is next. Now, the Neil Prenderville Show, Red FM. Coming up on 10 past 11, a very good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show. Let's uh, join Jer Sline in Inishannon. Good morning to you, Jer. Good morning, Mick. You're How currently you? in Dublin Airport? I'm in, yeah, en route to a gate. You're en route to a gate, okay, so you're, you're under pressure for time. You're flying to Biarritz in France? That's correct. Uh, and what exactly are you doing? Um... Well, for people that don't know, there's a range of different Caminos. I'm doing the Camino Francis, which is one of the longer ones. It's uh, 500 miles, stroke 800k, from the French side of the Pyrenees, uh, through the Pyrenees over two days, and across northern Spain all the way to Santiago de Compostela, uh, where the, where the rumour has it that the remains 
of the of uh, the, the Apostle Saint James is buried. Right. So, do, do do the various um, caminos all end at Santiago de Compostela? Yes. yes, that's where that that's the final of it, and that's where you get your your Compostela or your certificate and completion of your route. Yeah, but of course you, you get a passport as well and you, and, you, and you get that stamped along the way, don't you? That's exactly, they call it the credential there. So you have to have it stamped every day in a hotel or your albergue or your lodgings. Isn't, or it, isn't it a fabulous t- tourism element? I know it's been tried here in certain degrees, but isn't yeah. it fabulous that businesses and uh, hostelries and accommodation have their own stamp? Uh, that the you know not only for you to remember your journey but to prove you were there, and uh, it's it's a lovely feature, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's, it's what makes it so special is that you know you everybody has a different stamp. So when you look at it afterwards and you look back on your journey, you'd say, oh yeah, I remember that place now. And uh, you know they will argue that it's not about tourism, but it's a big business. Um, Spain is well set up for it. a lot of their hostels are run by the government or run by local authorities. And then you have the private hostels like B&Bs, and then you have the upmarket hotels and stuff. But to okay. get into the real spirit of it, you need to be staying in the, um, the municipal albergues, as they call them, where you could have anything from 10 to 200. On Thursday night, I'm staying in an old monastery in a place called Roncevalles, and it has 200 beds over four floors. So that could be some fun. If, if if people want to, you know, it's a it's a very heartwarming and uh, kind of ironic and nostalgic movie about the Camino. It's called The Way. Uh, one of my favourite act- actors, Martin Sheen, uh, is the is the, plays the main role. Uh, but the the movie was directed by his son uh, Emilio Estevez, uh, and and that will show you the passports. It'll show you lots of the walking scenes as he goes to Santiago de Compostela. Now you've got a, a much longer hike than Martin Sheen uh, undertook in that. It's about <laughs> 500 miles. What's, what sort of prep have you put in for this? Uh, yeah, I've been walking. I've been prepping really with about six months, I suppose, Mick. Um, I've, done, I've done in excess of a thousand kilometers in training. Um, but it's very hard to train for this because it's different terrain. You don't really know what you're going on. So I train on flat. I train on hills. Uphills, downhills, and um, kind of parkland, ground tracks as well as roadways. A lot of both half and half between track and roadway. And what, what's the so, foot gear? Uh, is it hiking boots? Well, there you are. This is this is where the um, the choices come in. It's really a choice. Uh, just to and for them, it's half and half pavement and track. So you could go with either. They're saying, but they're saying this time of the year, trail runners are, are what to go with. It's what I'm wearing. Mm-hmm. Which, as you know, the last week or so, weather has been poor in Spain, northern Spain. And um, a lot of the tracks are very muddy, I believe, at the minute. So I just have to wait and see how it goes. This is where the, uh, the hiking poles come in. Uh, very important and down to the tracks because I read over the weekend about people falling and uh, fracturing ankles and twisting knees, etc. So uh, you need to be careful as well. It certainly isn't on yeah. flat ground, you know. Do your people undertake the Camino for voyages of self-discovery to find themselves, if you like, or they do it for good causes? Why are you doing it? Well, I've been talking about this for 10 years, myself and my wife, and we never got around to it. So I officially retired from the ESB last month at 65. I had a knee replacement five years ago, and I was always aiming to do something like this, just a challenge, really. Uh, nothing hugely spiritual or, or uh, religious in that respect. But uh, I'm also doing it for a charity. I'm doing it for Pieta House, which is um, which is close to my heart. It came to visit my extended family some years ago. So I've been involved with Pieta House for about 14, 15 years. So I'm going to try and raise a few bob for them at the same time. 
Okay, so you, you lost someone tragically and you think Pieta House is, is the worthy cause that you can support? Yeah, that's about that's it in a nutshell, yeah. Okay, uh, can I just make one slight criticism here? Absolutely. I think your target is very low. <laughs> yeah, well, my daughter, thank, thank Rebecca, my daughter, who has been involved with, with, the, with your show before, um, she set it up at the 500 miles, maybe if she'd gone with the 800k, it would have been better. <laughs> <laughs> because what you're doing is you can target a 500 euro euro for each mile you walk uh, I, I, I think we should forget that and, and blast pa- past how many times more than one euro for each mile you walk can you raise for Pieta House oh I'm with you on that Mick all the way so you're, you're already at 460 so you're going to be walking a long long way now for fi- for 40 quid yeah, that, yeah that doesn't make sense I suppose yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, look, I'd have to get back. I'd have to get back to my logistics partner. Yeah, we're, look, we're happy to publicise the fact that uh, even if you hit the five hundred, there's plenty room for more uh, on the GoFundMe, and, and, and it will be going to a, to a good cause. Who's accompanying you? I'm, I'm a solo pilgrim, Mick. Solo. Um, solo pilgrim. Yeah. No, they say you're never solo on a Camino, but I'm doing it on my own, and uh, meet somebody along the way all the time. But yeah, I'm doing it on my own. Okay. So the duration will take you five to six weeks. That's what I'm hoping, uh, Mick. I'm not sure. I'm really sucking and seeing how things will go here. That's on a basis of doing 20k a day. Yeah, and and, and, and your stops will allow you to replenish food to carry and, and give you that sustenance and sleep and shelter, will it? Absolutely. That's the whole idea. And uh, uh, this, The structure is really well set up under Francis. They're geared towards this because it's the busiest one. So they have a lot of places. Every other village or town will have a cafe or maybe a hostel or something like that, you know? So yeah. Uh, it's well set up for that. Like you're, you're never, you don't have to go beyond five or six miles without coming to a place where you can rest and get something refreshment for that. Yeah, so for anyone who might look at it as a voyage of discovery or even a mini holiday, if they, if they like walking and trekking in the hills, do, do you have your accommodation booked in advance or do you just uh, see how far you get and see what yeah, you get? On, on good advice from an experienced walker in the States, I would advise to book my first four nights, which would hopefully take me into Pamplona. Running of the bills. The, the running bulls. of the bulls. Yeah, no, that's, you, I, that's, that's over. It's over, is it? Yeah. Yeah, but um, what will happen is that um, it gets it's really busy from now until Pamplona. Just for whatever reason, Pamplona is the first big city you meet, and you um, people take take time out there. They they take maybe a couple of extra days there, do a bit of sightseeing, and maybe you know the people don't. What for whatever reason the crowds thin out after Pamplona. So I have no booking after Pamplona, but I will be booking, let's say, in the morning. I need to be booking for that evening, otherwise I may not yeah. get a bid. Yeah, but you're, you're not going to put yourself under pressure to finish it in, in a oh, certain no. amount of time either, I'm are under, you? You're I'm retired. Under no I'm a retired man, yes. Yeah, so I'm under no pressure. I'm gone with my wife's blessing. So and, and you might seize up as well. You might need a few days rest in a jacuzzi or something. Well, yeah, blisters are a big problem, Mick. Yeah. Um, uh, people overexerting themselves in the early days. Next thing they have blisters on their feet and they take a few days to to settle down again and then they can flare up again. So you need to be careful in the first weeks after this. All I'm right. aiming to be back for the jazz festival, Mick. Very good. That's a nice extended holiday. And, and <laughs> I assume you're going to take some pictures. Do you have a blog or do you have a website? Or? No, I haven't a blog, but I, I'll do something. I'll take some pictures and a few videos and I'll send them to, to Rebecca, my daughter, who will um, We'll put them up on Facebook and that sort of people can see them, people who've donated or people who maybe who'd like to donate. You know? Sure, and will you ask Rebecca to keep in touch with us if, if you can't do so directly? We might contact you again along the way if you've got a good signal. No let, let's, let, let's talk about that GoFundMe because we need to get be getting more than 500 euro here. It's Jer Slines' Journey to the Camino 
for Pieta House. Jer Sline's journey to the Camino for Pieta House. And uh, you can donate there. And uh, hopefully, with you, you know, you're very good natured. You're giving up a lot of your time. I know you're going to enjoy it, but your heart's in the right place for the right cause. And I think we can do a lot better than 500 euro, considering you've raised 460 already. <laughs> I didn't know that. No, mix. I'm on the road since half four this morning, so I have yeah. it on my phone, really. All right. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, Pieta House can be contacted on 021 439 5333. That's 021 439 5333. Uh, people have been asking for the Samaritans number again. It's 116 123. 116 123. we leave it here, Gate at Dublin Airport. Uh, safe flight to Biarritz. And uh, best of luck on the Camino Frances, uh, which you're beginning tomorrow. Uh, and uh, the best of luck for your eventual arrival in uh, at the church in uh, Santiago de Compostela. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Mick. Take All the best, Jer. Thanks. Uh, bye bye. That movie again is called The Way. It features Martin Sheen. Uh, it's directed by his son Emilio Estevez, and uh, it really does give uh, a flavour of the Camino and of the uh, you know the pitfalls, uh, the little things that happen, the lost tempers, the camaraderie, the singing. Uh, the passport stamping, the walking, the views, all of that kind of thing as Martin Sheen carries his late son's ashes. No, he didn't die in real life, but uh, that's, the, that's the movie story. Uh, he does appear in the movie, but uh, he appears as a corpse and then he's cremated. Uh, but he is the, uh, the director of that movie as well. It's called The Way, uh, featuring uh, Martin Sheen and details the uh, Spanish side of uh, the Camino. Some texts that have come in to us on 0868104106. Mick Paddy Riley is the greatest ballad singer of all time. Okay. Uh, I remember the Wolf Tones at Shimsa Kushli at Parky Kiev in the uh, 1980s. A fantastic gig. And they could fill it again today, says Todd and Douglas. Uh, maybe the Wolf Tones should start writing songs about our current government, the corruption, homelessness, cost of living, etc. Maybe then people might finally take to the streets uh, to get them out. Uh, Mick, the IRA murdered more Catholics than the British Army, says another texture. The Irish media and governments are trying for years to bury the IRA with our true history since the end of the Civil War. Uh, well, uh, they can they can forget about it. The younger people know now what happened in this country. Uh, with the thousands at the Wolftone gig chanting up the rad, do we have a right to criticise? Tricolours being burned on orange bonfires in July, says Pat. Another texture says, I remember the 80s and in the 80s, the IRA were bombing London and in a park in southeast London, the Wolftone played, uh, Wolftones played to the same size crowd as on Sunday. Uh, a text on Gardaí. While we're talking about the lack of Gardaí, I have a question. Why is there still a Garda presence in Cyprus? There is a small number of Irish Gardaí still deployed in Cyprus. Wouldn't they be better serving here? Uh, members of Angarda Siakona have served with UN peacekeeping missions since 1989, I'm told, including in Namibia and the Western Balkans. Currently, Ireland has 12 Garda members deployed with the United Nations Peacekeeping Force in Cyprus. So if that's uh, any way of an answer, uh, I take your rhetorical question. Uh, while we're talking about the lack of Gardaí, why is there still a Garda presence in Cyprus? Small number of Irish Gardaí are deployed there. Uh, deployed there. Ireland has actually 12 Garda members deployed with the United Nations Peacekeeping Force in Cyprus. Uh, and that support effort has been uh, given by Angarda Siakona to the UN peacekeeping missions since 1989. Uh, and a shout-out. Hi, Mick. Uh, can you please give a shout-out to Tirnanog Montessori School on the Douglas Road, uh, who are celebrating their uh, 40th 
anniversary uh, today. That's a business we used when we had smallies and it was absolutely fantastic. So very happy uh, to give a shout out to Tiernanog, uh, Montessori School on the Douglas Road, who are celebrating their 40th anniversary uh, today. Now, I want to give a quick shout out to two loyal listeners, Roger and Betty Skillington. Uh, of Mulgrave Road, which is near Shandon. 56 years of wedded bliss today. Uh, they're Corconians through and through, and they love the programme. Much loved and friends to many. Uh, here's to many more years together with lots of love from Jeremy Skillington. 56 years married today, the 5th of September. So a big shout-out to Roger and Betty Skillington of Mulgrave Road near Shandon. 56 years of uh, wedded bliss today. Uh, much loved uh, by friends and much loved by many. And here is from us to many more years together to these two Carconians through and through. Congrats to Roger and Betty. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. Coming up to 26 minutes past 11, Robert Bailey rejoins us in line two, and I hope it's a better line. Welcome back, Robert. Thank you very much, Mick. Thank you for having me. No, just to synopsize uh, where we were before the bad phone yeah. line let us down, I don't want any school names or teachers mentioned, of please. Course. But yeah. you, you were bullied at the age of 14 and 15 in a public school in East Cork. Your school books would be stolen by other students. Your coat would be taken, uh, etc. But you wouldn't tell, you, you would tell the teacher uh, and the principal, but nothing was ever done. Where did this lead to? Do I believe it led to you having no academic qualifications? Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. And employers were slow to, to take me on due to my lack of education and the fact that I'm 50 odd years of age. And um, unfortunately, it's still to this very day, 50 years on. No, it's not everybody, but there are some certain people in this town that continue to subject me to torture of the mind. So you couldn't progress with your education due to a lack of no. books. Uh, yet, these, yeah. yet these books were supplied to you by your parents or whatever, or you know, by the yeah, system. Uh, and because of that, you, you were successfully put into lower classes. Yeah. And just left there to fend for myself. Lunchtime would be a walk around the schoolyard on my own. Um, and then one stage I had suffered, one, one of them ran me into a concrete pillar. And I suffered from concussion. And instead of ringing for an ambulance or doctor, a teacher took me home. And there was no follow-up to see who did that. Okay, so th- this is a traumatic time. If, if, if you're not being... If you're not being listened to by those who are meant to be giving the education, if if the continuing bullying bullying is allowed to happen, the continuing theft of your books and you're put into into lower classes, that must have had a serious effect on your self esteem. It is, yeah. It, it, it also bullying also affects various areas of the brain. So trying to concentrate on it, on anything while being in there is next to impossible. So uh, how how are you doing today? Do you have low self-worth or are you happy in your skin? Uh, some days are bad. Some days are good. Um, so um, I take the good with the bad and, and when I get hit with a, a, a bad event, I just go for a walk for an hour or two to just clear my mind and get myself back on the right track. Okay, now, without mentioning names, I do have all the names in front of me. You, you have made representations to various departments, various ministers, uh, various councillors, various TDs, and senior ministers at Cabinet. Um, what, what I find a startling statistic from your letter 
uh, to us, Robert, is that you've applied, you claim, to over 450, sorry, 550 jobs so far this year. Uh, yeah. And that obviously has uh, has borne no fruit, no? No, not even not even a, a, a reply. Uh, is that because you're age at 58 uh, or is it because I, you've no formal qualifications? I think both. Okay. What what kind of work would you be willing to do? Anything. Um, I have... I'd, I'd go into um, uh, an office and type up on a computer because during the pandemic, I wasn't sitting on my backside doing nothing. I went on to my computer and I learned how to do Excel, Word, PowerPoint. Okay, so are you self-taught in those regards? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay, so you, you, you'd be good at clerical work. Yeah. You, you, you can't have not held down a job for all, all this time. Uh, in in, oh, in, the, no, jo- in the jobs I, you did secure, how did that go? Again, the, no, again, not everybody would do it, but there were certain people within that, uh, in that cohort of employment that would subject me to bullying and looked at me as a joke. And my last employer, after I, bring, after I brought a 15-year-old boy back to life from me on the simulator, bullied me out of my job where I got no sleep, I couldn't eat. Um, going into work was a fear factor beyond my recognition, and eventually uh, I had to part. Okay, so your physiological and psychological health has been damaged. Uh, I just want to get back to that, and I don't want the employer's name mentioned, please, or we yeah, have no, to... I won't, I won't. Got to I call. Won't. You saved a 15-year-old boy with your own AED uh, yeah. and brought him back to life. What are you doing with your own AED? I have it at home. Yeah? Yeah. And if it's required, I'd use it again. I volunteer for uh, voluntary ambulance services, and they have their own. And I just keep my skills set up to date, and ensuring that any patient I do treat gets the 100% requirements that he should be getting in order to maintain a life on this planet. Okay, if your school days were a hell, Robert, it now seems to me like you're living in an eternal prison. How is your sleeping? How is your eating? Um, uh, some days it's good. Some days uh, I might get an hour or two hours sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, other times I might get four or five. But um, I try not to dwell on the past because that's doing nothing for me. Um, and I'm trying to focus on the future rather than the past as I can't change the past. What, what advice would you give to any youngsters or any listeners, uh, even mature listeners in employment, uh, who may be undergoing bullying, bullying by social media, bullying in the workplace, smart comments, exclusion, that kind of thing. Well, you know, you, you obviously have a lot of first-hand experience here. Yeah. So what advice would you give? I would advise them to sit down with their parents and even though the pain of relating it back to their parents can be intense, it's better than keeping it to yourself. There's also a 1968 statutory law that states every child is entitled to full primary and full secondary level education nowhere. Nowhere in that act does it say that a teacher or an adult or a child can interfere with somebody else's education. Yeah, so that statutory right exists in the in the constitution. Yes. Sure, sure, surely, when you saved a life, when you saved a fifteen-year-old boy uh, with equipment, you you know you had yourself uh, essentially bringing that boy back to life. Surely, that must have given you a good psychological and mental boost to say, you know, something. I'm 
I'm past this. I'm not going to let it define me anymore. I'm going to look forward. Well, all the all the feel good factors in the body just went up to a hundred percent. Um, feeling it gave me was better than winning the European Lotto. Um, and I, I was totally elated for the for the rest of the week when I had brought that young fellow back. And then did a crash come, like after any high? Not no. Uh, the only crash that came is when my employer was subjecting me to psychological torture. This is unrelated um, to saving the boy's life, oh, then. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, because no, nobody can take that from you. That's a positive you'll carry with you. Uh, to, to your dying day, the fact that you saved a life. Yeah. Oh, you gave me an immense thrill. I was on a high for a day. Mm. So where where do you go from here? Do you continue to apply for employment? Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not willing to sit here and claim money from the stairs. I want to walk. Mm. And so to any prospective employers out there, what, what areas? We've mentioned clerical... Uh, where else would you have expertise or feel you'd have value to add? Uh, customer service. You mean tracking, searching, airport? Talking to, um, because I always enjoyed customer relations. Oh, customer and, service. I thought you meant, yeah, I, thought yeah. you, I thought you said customs service. No, no. Um, I always related, enjoyed talking to people and when you give somebody that you're dealing with a positive outcome rather than a negative they're only too willing to come back to you yeah and have you tried to work remotely maybe from home in the customer service area uh, no i haven't okay maybe that's maybe that's an avenue you, you could explore because yeah. you you're, you're very vocal you're, you're very conversant and i think you, you. you know you'd handle people's problems with some empathy and with with some direction if you had the training thank you thank you so I don't know where we go from here, except uh, put, out, put out a general plea to employers that, um, you know, would you say you're living on your nerves? Uh, sometimes, but not all the time. Mm. So you reckon in employment you would have the, the ability to settle, to focus and to deliver? Yeah, yeah. That was always my main focus when, when I was working in the customer service area. Mm. And do you feel the system has failed you or that successive government ministers have failed you? Uh, or has well, it done all it can for you? It's, it's providing for you right now. Yeah. Well, you see, there are 50 countries in the world that make bullying a criminal offence. And that's what this country should be doing. For the last 50 years, it's been going on. And nobody is doing anything about it. The guards won't prosecute you, prosecute anybody who's bullying a person uh, because they turn around and say there's no legislation, there's no state law. Um, the and it's very hard to identify that a crime has been committed. Maybe under the new hate speech laws as they are proposed, uh, there may be some avenues for the guardie to get involved there. But it's, it's, it will be all but impossible to uh, to prosecute or to to find any evidence of wrongdoing and for instance and i know this um, this affects young girls more than young boys uh, but bullying by exclusion just just having um, you know people turn their back on you and not bringing you into the chat group or not inviting you to the party uh, that's its own surreptitious form of bullying it is yeah but usually with boys it's usually physical with girls it's usually psychological and if there's no cure for psychological injury, 
uh, just you have to live with it. The, whereas if it's a physical injury or a medical injury, you get medication that will treat it. But psychological damage is untreatable. Okay, well, I feel for you. Uh, I, I do Thank hope. You. I I do hope that uh, our interview will uh, maybe bring some prospective employers into place. It's it's obvious you have skill sets. Um, yeah. my, it it seems to be a pattern, though. Uh, if you're continually bullied in the workplace, that, that, that there must be something causing that, and that's why I, I suggested remote working. I know it may not do the best yeah, for your yeah. confidence. Um, but it might make you feel more fulfilled as a person uh, to be in an area where, well, essentially you couldn't be bullied. You could probably be, you probably could still be bullied over the phone by a boss or something. But, but yeah. why, why would that happen? I, you know, I look in the mirror every morning for signs of where it says victim. And I think that anybody that bullies another person recognizes whether it's your physical stance or whatever it is can zone in on you and uh, subject you to further forms of psychological injury. And to anyone who would have, who would have bullied you back in the, in the day, knowingly and, you know, w- with intent, do you think they ever realise how lasting those, those temporary bullying situations have had an impact on your soul, on your life, on your psyche, on your outlook? No, because I think they wouldn't do it if they had a, an inch of understanding of what this form of torture does to a person. Do you think you'll ever be the outgoing, confident person that you, you, you could have been if the bullying hadn't taken place? I don't know. I can't answer that question. I'm yeah. sorry. All right. But I just have to take day by day, and thank you for your time. It's, it's great. And, you know, there's a certain amount of bravery needed to come on, on, on the radio and, you know, to, yeah. to tell me all about your situation. Because fear was one of the, and the embarrassment of telling somebody else that I can be subject to this was a handicapper itself. Mm. Do, do you think you'd feel better following this interview now when you put the phone down? Well, I think I might have uh, taken some of the clouds off the horizon and enjoyed yeah. the day. Well, well why, why not find two or three jobs and focus on them for the day and, and get your applications in and... Um, and see where it goes. It could be a turning point yeah. for you. It could be. Thank you very much for your time. All right. Thanks, Robert. No problem. Thank bye you. Bye That's now. Robert Bailey. We lost him on a bad phone line earlier in the programme. Happy to bring him on and address that balance and give him the airtime uh, that he deserves. Once again, uh, some text about uh, Katrina O'Sullivan's talk on the 28th of September. As I suspected, it's going to be in Tabor Lodge. We didn't know, so I didn't say. Uh, but uh, the uh, talk by uh, Professor Katrina O'Sullivan... Uh, the details of the of the time and venue. Uh, so many people are saying they've read her book and found it to be one of the best ever. Uh, and that is an evening with Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan on the 28th of September at Tabor Group in partnership with the UCC School of Applied Psychology will present an evening with Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan taking place in Tabor Lodge Primary Residential Treatment Building in Belgoolian County Cork. Now, if you're interested in attending this event, I suspect it's not ticketed, but you need to email S. O'Donoghue at tabergroup.ie S.O.Donoghue at tabergroup.ie The Neil Prendeville Show on Cork's Red FM Our phone lines remain open after midday 0818-104-106 Good morning from the Neil Prendeville Show at 17 minutes to 12 This is Mick Mulcahy Special guest in studio This could be a little madcap It's Hector and I hope I get the pronunciation correct Is it a Hokagon or O'Higagon? 
No, you go back to the first one. You got it perfect there, and that one, Mick. Oh, yeah. hook a gone. Oh, hook a gone. Got a The only Irish I know is when I go down to the Gael and, and I'm late, I say, and, and will beer fall false? Ta beer fall, ta joker fall, ta yeah. pinter fall, vi pinta gamareer. You know something was beaten into us in school, and I, I, I don't mean l- literally beaten into us, but it, there, there was a dogma and a stigma about not having enough Irish that it, it drove the love of the language out of us. And, and you only find that again when you go back and say, you know something I wish yeah. I could speak like this again. There was um, a lot beaten out of us over, yeah. the, over the decades in Ireland, so yeah. um, we have a lot to answer for in many, many things. Yeah, we, we mentioned in, in the uh, commercial break there the, uh, the great travel programmes done by, you know, the, your forebears, Billy Connolly, Michael Palin. Michael Palin, unbelievable. I'll never yeah. forget when he was standing in a, a train station in Cairo back in the middle of the 80s and they were taking a slow boat somewhere off into the Indian Ocean just incredible stuff incredible um, yeah brilliant travel shows and uh, they stand the test of time and hopefully our one does well yeah, does as well after 23 years you've done some amazing stuff uh, but this is an ambitious one this is uh, it's always going to be banter filled when you're it's always going to be a bit of crack uh, but this is a, this is kind of different because this is the Philippines Malaysia Singapore Java Bali Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. Why, why, why that? Why that focus? Is it a geographical cost yeah, thing? I suppose, or? Mick. We look at it every year. We we film during the winter time. We start planning uh, a year in advance, and every new series comes out then on, in the autumn time on TG Car. So it takes about a year planning. We want to go on adventures. We use maps. We're making seven one-hour documentaries which is over 350 minutes of television. So we want to bring people on a journey with the map, and we want to push the boat out. It's easy to go to a major European city and do a travel show and tell them what five-star hotel to stay in or what beautiful restaurant you're in, but that's not the type of TV that we want to make. And over the years, we've we've made our niche, we've made our brand, and people come with us for seven weeks on a journey through amazing places. And we go off the beaten track and we fly to difficult places. We drive to difficult jungle locations, remote locations, mm. to get the good stories and to meet great people. Yeah, like even in the top gear, you know, when they often tour somewhere, they've done South Africa, they've done America, they've done Vietnam. It, it's those specials where you really get into the psyche of the of the, of the presenters, but more into the the psyche of the local people. Yeah, and, and the way they live their lives. And you're going to see a variety of of people here between the Philippines and the Solomon Islands. That's yeah, the thing, the difference between uh, Top Gear and any of those programs is probably about 150 people behind in makeup exactly, trucks. Exactly, yeah. Huge and, budget. And, and huge budgets. What, and what's helicopters. your budget? What's the crew like? The budget is two people. Myself, Roscoe and Evan. We've travelled. A man from Mount Bellew in County Galway and a lad from Dundrum, Roscoe, who has now become one of the major cameramen in the, in the UK doing the race around the world. SAS Who Dares wins. He's winning BAFTAs now. He's a brilliant cameraman. And Ros- Roscoe and Evan. So there's three of us. It's always been three of us, so we double mm. up on everything. We lug our gear around. Roscoe does sound and camera. So I suppose having an intimate small crew like that, everybody knows Roscoe because Roscoe has been with me for 23 years. Yeah. On every single show we've done, I can turn to that cameraman and say, Roscoe, fake or show? Just have a look at this. Somebody comes up to me and talks to me. We stop in the middle of a jungle. We see something happening. We see somebody selling food on the side of the road. We sit with the local people. And that's the type of TV that I want to make. Yeah, so it's, it's like a long-established double-hander. Like, yeah. like you might have, for instance, on the podcast with Tommy. Yeah. You, know, you know each yes. other. You grow up together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's spontaneous and something yeah. happens, Mick, because th- you can research a story for six months 
on paper and send emails to people but when you get there you realise that story isn't as good but then all of a sudden you're driving in a, in a remote area or country area in a mountain area stop the car because there's a farmer out working the paddy field and for the next four hours we sit with a farmer as the rains fall in Bali or whatever happens like that so that's the type of TV we want to make Okay Now your schedule must be full I mean these are scheduled to come out uh, and I'm just interested in making a living from, from this because this must be planned so far in advance this must be paid for up front when do you guys, this isn't the TV licence paying for any of this. this. This is all funded and it must be bought and there must be an appeal for it before you guys even get paid. Yeah, yeah but TG Car, I suppose when we started in TG Car, we were young, single men. We were travelling to Asia for three months in 2001. I got on the plane with Roscoe and Evan. I'd never met them before. Evan is this gregorious, larger-than-life character who, who sat to my right. And uh, Roscoe had his he was Southside Dublin accent. He had a Leinster jersey on and he was reading Michael Schumacher's autobiography. And I said to myself, who are these two guys I'm going to travel the world with? But, the, the you know, they've become my brothers over the last 23 years. We, look at T.G. Cahar, my show has, has become part and parcel of TG Car. Uh, TG Car is the parish of the country. People understand what they get on TG Car now and it's stood mm. the test of time. Yeah. And people are brought to the brought to TG Car because you have a subtitle. Because I can be speaking Irish on the other side of the planet and the subtitle brings you in. But the language, you know, whether it's Spanish or a bit of Polish or whatever, I'm lucky that I have a, have a take on a couple of languages. Language makes the world go round and we need languages to talk to people. But sometimes you don't need language by shaking a hand with somebody uh, in a remote part of Malaysia, smiling and letting the camera tell the story. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's get people invested in the first programme because I'm sure the quality of stuff that you make, uh, there's no point getting them invested in a, a halfway through the series. Let's get them invested in the first one, which is uh, the first of the Philippines uh, to the Solomon. So you're, you're talking about Indonesian islands and yes. Pacific islands yes. here. Uh, so th that's a big distance. I'm 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 into sailing, and these are the places I'd love to visit. So I might be back on to you for for a few tips. Uh, so tell us about the first one. This the first stop for Hector is the vibrant capital Manila, Manila. In, in the Philippines. I mean, the Philippines. We've got a relationship in Ireland. There's tens of thousands of Filipino people who have come here and who are caring people and loving people. Great nurses, great mu musicians, exactly. great sailors. They're great. great They're just a great race of people. Yeah. They're seafaring people, and they've got a big heart and they've got a big smile. We landed in Manila. Seventeen million people a megatropolis of six cities that's now called Metro Manila an amazing, amazing, vibrant city but one of the great stories you'll see on the first show on Thursday night is that there is a huge amount of richness in the city skyscrapers it's, a, it's expanding like all Southeast Asia cities but deep within the cities in the poorer areas things aren't as rosy mm. in the garden so a lot of inequality a lot of poverty in the slum areas and the poor areas so we went deep into one of the poorer areas with a local man a local teacher who's given it all up to set up a mobile classroom he's got the blackboard he's got the little chairs he's got the little tables he's got the crayons the markers the colouring books the ABCs and with his bunch of volunteers four days a week they take the classroom deep into the side streets and deep into the back streets to talk to the kids to see the kids and all of a sudden as we set up this mobile classroom 50 or 60 kids came out of every corner out wow. of every door and sat there and it was a mobile classroom and if you think about it we had mobile classrooms in this country when the Irish language and everything that we had in this country was bet out of us by the colonial invaders, the English. And, and Do you know what had, I mean? The hedge schools. We had the mass rocks and the hedge, and the hedge schools. Kind of so look, at, we, we like touching on stories like that. We touch on a controversial story about cockfighting. Whether people think it's controversial, I don't know. All I'm there to document it. But cockfighting is the biggest sport in the Philippines. 
every weekend tens of thousands of people are packed into stadiums all over the country millions of Filipino dollars are bet on cockfighting cockfighting is a huge industry uh, it's a huge gambling industry and it's a huge breeding industry and as I say the biggest at the biggest festival of the year you could have 80,000 people in the stadium watching the cocks fighting for the championship Is there a safety element to travelling in Manila? Some Filipinos have told me yeah, you'd, you'd want to be with people who know I think, I think when we get to an airport, if we have a good driver, Mick, I swear to God, if we have a good driver, whether we arrive at four o'clock in the morning, you know that yeah. driver when you're putting in the gear, he's going to be our eyes and ears on the ground. When you've got a good local guy, that's that's the key for us. I don't believe a lot of this that we're led by Google and, and TripAdvisor and saying, don't go here. If you Google Papua New Guinea or anybody listening to the show this morning, the first thing that'll come up is kidnappings, hostage, rascals, yeah. street crime. And when we get there, it's a completely different thing. I've never heard of anyone from Ireland going to Papua New Guinea. I've never heard of an Irish TV crew going to Papua New Guinea and I've never heard of a man from Navan going to Papua New Guinea. <laughs> but after 23 years travelling, the show from Papua New Guinea is one of the best we've ever okay. made. This let, is let, a different world. Let, let's quickly uh, go over all the shows. You go to Malaysia, you go to KL, Kuala Lumpur. No, I didn't like it as a city, did you? Kuala Lumpur is, is uh, no, too much cement. But mm. an interesting story, the Petronas Towers, some one of the greatest skyscrapers, the two Petronas Towers with the link between the two of them. There's only one patch of ground left in Kuala Lumpur and it's a football pitch by the local football club with the traditional houses. It is the last existing football club in the centre of Kuala Lumpur. It is the last existing piece of grass and I met the chairman, a lovely lady, who's passionate about our football club and I trained with the local football club in the midst of some of the greatest skyscrapers in the world. It's a great story. Fantastic. You know, football versus skyscrapers. Each one of these seems that they can't be missed. You find yourself in Singapore going into the struggles of the migrant workers and you eat at the food stall that has a Michelin star. Michelin star for chicken, chicken and noodle. It was incredible. A Michelin star food stall doing chicken and noodles. Uh, the migrant workers, we've seen it in Qatar. Bangladeshi, millions of young Bangladeshi and Indian men are sent to Singapore to build the glitzy five-star hotels, to build the motorways, to build the metro systems, but they have, they're undocumented, they have no health system, and when they get injured, nobody cares about them. So we went down again, deeper into the Indian area, the Tamil Indian area of Singapore. We tried to give you an alternative slice of life of Singapore. Yes, it's Formula One. Yes, it's five-star hotels. Yes, millions of people stop off there for a fantastic two or three day stop, but there's a different side to Singapore. Mm-hmm. Five million people living in an area smaller than County Loud. Five million? Five million people. So the, the rest of the programmes take us on to Java, take us on to Bali, to Papua New Guinea, as, as you've just mentioned, uh, and to the Solomon Islands. So why would people watch this programme? I'm already intrigued that I, that, that, that I can't miss it. Uh, number one, we're going to have a fantastic presenter who is not afraid to go off track and not, not afraid to, to delve into what makes people unique in these areas um, would you consider yourself a man of the people and that people always seem to take to you well the thing is if we can't take the people on this planet we can take to nobody it doesn't cost much to sit down and shake a hand and be civil and be respectful and I don't care what part of the planet we're on whether I'm standing in Centra waiting for a chicken roll from a young lad or whether I'm on the, in the middle of Sudan sitting mm. with the lads drinking a cup of tea in the middle of Khartoum or whether I'm walking in the jungles of Malaysia when you shake hands with people and when you say hello that's what we do on this. That's, it doesn't matter if it's tribal. It doesn't matter how remote it is. 
I'm telling you a smile we are all peoples of this amazing planet so I find that it's a humbling experience for me maybe we've got good at over 23 years of finding the right stories and being with people and people trust us touch wood but we are really proud and excited that we can document these amazing places and since the pandemic and the lockdown there's a huge hunger in people to discover the world to get back on track to, mm. to, to look at the sky to look at mother nature I mean it's spectacular scenery as we go through Indonesia a fifth of the world's equator 17 and a half thousand islands there's 750 million people in Southeast Asia and we think the world revolves around this city or Dublin or what's, London what's, what's the ambition of the programme Hector is it to get people to travel to these places or just to do a social commentary my ambition and educate is, them my ambition places. has always been that my mates watch my television shows yeah. when my mates watch my television shows I'm happy if they're happy I'm happy I want to make good TV when the dishwasher is full when the kids are going to bed if they're that young whether they're all on the couch, when you have a cup of tea and you watch something decent on television. Television has become the lowest common denominator. Sometimes you get good programmes mm. and fingers crossed, people like our show and they've grown up with our show and you have people who were teenagers 10, 15 years ago who are now young married couples still watching our show. I think they get an honesty on it. They get a bit of fun. But if you can, if you can learn something about this amazing planet and people we have on this planet, I've been blown away by by the Solomon Islands, by Papua New Guinea, by places around the globe. With a generation that's much more open to travel than we were, for instance, in the 80s, when you had to be forced to travel Yeah, to but survive. back then it was backpacking around Europe. Mm. If you went backpacking or around, you were here, interrailing. <laughs> you know, off to Germany, interrailing. But it's, listen, I'm not saying that it's easy for people to get to Papua New Guinea or the Solomon Islands, but there are there is an appetite for people who want to go to fur, further fun places. I mean, Thailand. Thailand has been the number one destination for the last 30, 40 years. There are, more, there are more cooler places in, in Southeast Asia. The Southern Islands of Cambodia, Malaysia. These are all, like, you're talking 17,500 islands. Bur- Burma is meant to be what Thailand was 50 years ago. Burma, I was in Myanmar. An yeah. Amazing place, yeah. amazing place. But we're proud that TG Car is the home of our show and that TG Car is going from strength to strength. That's what we're very proud of. First show is on the 7th of the 9th, so that's two days' time. It's going to be happening on Thursday, 9.30pm. It's a must-watch, and we'll invite anybody who watches it to ring in the programme the following day. Uh, and I think you're going to be hooked uh, for the rest of the year, uh, the six more that are going to come out. Hector Yehogagon, well done. And like, like I think with Billy Connolly, you know, on his deathbed, he's going to say, I had a life. I really got to see most of this place that's spinning around the sun. And I think you're 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 kind of getting there now as well. This place that spins around the sun, man, isn't that isn't that an easy way to describe this planet that we live on? When yeah. you see that blue sky and, and sunshine in Cork this morning, we realise that the banks and the politicians aren't in charge of the weather. Just, Thanks be to just God. Just put us all under one big white flag and let's all go. Travel. And under one big blue sky where we can smile and, be, and, and show a bit of love to each other. Well done. Well Mass said. more. Good meal, Morgan, Mick. Thanks. That's Hector E. Huckacon. For more Red FM podcasts, go to redfm.ie forward slash podcasts.